Life, no one really knows where it will take us. Is it our own decisions that guide us? Or does fate play the bigger role, dictating the road we'll travel? Which course we'll be steering? Seven years in the making. What twists we must endure? One thing is for certain. There is no certainty, no way to know. And everything can change in an instant. A year and a half of his life, gone. In a flash, the things you hold close can disappear, vanish like a lost thought. Lifelong trust can turn on you, blood can betray you, and the future you foresaw, gone. A family broken. Tonight is a pivotal point where paths collide. The 30-man Royal Rumble matchup. The winner goes to the main event at WrestleMania to wrestle for championship gold. And while some men's dreams will be shattered, no one's lives will ever be the same. One moment can change everything. Philadelphia, here we come! Tonight, fate will rear his head. Destiny will play his hand. The road to WrestleMania begins tonight. And now, Raw and SmackDown present WWE Royal Rumble. Speaking of surprises, I've been working secretly in the background whilst we've been talking on the Royal Crumble. <laughs> <laughs> Just about to take a sip of tea and it all went everywhere. <laughs> so, I'm taking the entrance of this year's Royal Rumble. <laughs> right. But I'm trying to change them into food. <laughs> when you say this year, you're talking about 2004 now. 2004's Rumble, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, would you like to hear what I've got? or Because what I could do is I could read you what I've got, and then you could try and help me fill in the rest. Okay. We really need old man for this. <laughs> they would be great at this. So, I've got Chris Beignet, <laughs> uh, Randy Torton. Right, okay. Uh, tahini. <laughs> uh, Brad Slaw. Right. Giving uh, away the or, the entrance order for our, yeah, uh, our rundown yeah. of the rumble in a minute, but there we go. Um, Rindho, as in like a rind on a piece of cheese. <laughs> I'm not sure you get that one. <laughs> um, all right, okay, I'll get rid of that one. We'll come back to we'll come back to Rhino later. Uh, Scott Piner, um, the Hurricane Cane. <laughs> That's good, like that. Uh, Booker Tiramisu. Who could that possibly be? Yeah, I know. Um, the Big Red Machine. <laughs> cake. <laughs> The big red machine cake. Rick, oh, it's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it out and it's really hard to say. Rikishish kebab. Rikishish kebab. Yeah. Um, Egg Shelton Benjamin. <laughs> you know what? It took me about a half a second to even understand what you meant then. <laughs> Ernest Muller Light. Chris Jericho Cold Cuts. Wow, you skipped a bunch there. <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, John Beaner. It's again, where's me? Uh, Goldberg Lettuce. <laughs> There's quite a lot there that are missing. So, we still got... The World's Strongest Flan, Mark Henry. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't care about that. Um, right, we've got Mike Rhino, Matt Hardy, Spike Dudley, Rene Dupree, A-Train, Kurt Angle, Rico, Mick Foley, Christian Nunzio, Big Show, Charlie Haas, Billy Gunn, and Rob Van I think you'll have to leave some of them with me and I'll try and come up with them as we go through the show. <laughs> maybe. Well, we're going to go through the Royal Rumble first anyway. So you maybe we'll, whilst we're doing it, maybe things will come up. 
Hello and welcome to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and we thank you for joining us for the second of our three-week Royal Rumble celebration as today we take in the 2004 edition of the show. We start with a correction from last week. I erroneously stated on our last show that the Warlord was not the Powers of Pain Warlord at the time of the 1990 Royal Rumble, when in fact he was. The team actually split up in March, a couple of months after that show. Joining me today is a man who still looks back on that breakup with great sadness in his heart. It's Tom Smith. Tom, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. Not too bad. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's been a while since I watched a Rumble, actually. In fact, the last Royal Rumble I watched was probably last year's Royal Rumble when we covered it for the show. So uh, it was quite, always quite quite like a Rumble watching it. And uh, this is a period uh, in, in specifically in WWE history that I'm very unfamiliar with. I was thinking about this earlier. I think basically from the end of WrestleMania 18 through to 24 is, is my dark period. So I was very interested to see what the state of the roster was at this at this stage in the game. Now, we were going to have a third guest, but we, we've lost them somewhere in the shuffle. So the, for now, it's just going to be myself and Tom. If someone should turn up later on, then that should happen. And that's great. Um, so what I was going to do before we got started, Tom, I was going to ask a little question because this is what I'm trying to do now instead of special introductions of whatnot. And the question I was going to ask is, how do we feel now about the Royal Rumble match these days? Does it still have the same excitement that it used to have? I mean, for me, for many years and probably, probably still now, I guess, is probably the most anticipated match of the year in terms of certainly in terms of WWE these days. Is, but is it is it starting to get old? Is it starting to wear out? Are the surprises becoming too much, especially when they announce them ahead of time, which makes no sense at all? Um, what do we feel? Do you know what? It's really interesting you say this because I've I've very much been feeling a bit rumble fatigued recently, kind of just thinking about the thinking about this year's rumble one. I've got very very little excitement towards it, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One being that the magic of the rumble, similar to Survivor Series, is that you got to see people interacting with each other who you wouldn't ordinarily see interacting with each other you don't get that anymore because there's so much tv to cover everyone's overexposed and everyone wrestles each other over the course of a year even with a brand split the second thing you're right about the surprises they become reliant on the surprises because WWE just want to constantly surprise people in lieu of actually creating good storylines because they think that's good enough for, for the fans and, that, and the final reason really is that and we can come on to it when it comes to when we talk about the rumble that we're reviewing today it seems to be these days there's only ever really one possible winner unless they go completely left and they go with the old Valvius angle that you promoted all those years ago, it is always, there's always completely telegraphed as to who's going to win it because it wouldn't make sense for anyone else to win it. The last great Rumble moment, I think, was probably when AJ Styles debuted. And when was that? Five, six years ago? And it's not been very good since then, in my opinion. This year's Rumble actually happens the day this episode comes out. Believe, well, In fact, I think it happens the day before this episode comes out. But... The listeners will just have to trust us. <laughs> this is not a retrospective prediction. <laughs> Are you suggesting that you know who's going to win this year's Royal Rumble? No, I don't care. There's a difference. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, I think this kind of ties in with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about what might happen at WrestleMania. And I think sometimes it's really obvious because of what matches seem to fit for WrestleMania. And so then you can usually retrospectively fit Okay, if you look back from WrestleMania and then think about who's got to win the Rumble in order to make that that show, it becomes easier to predict. I think this year, because neither of us, as we've said before, have any clue what they'll do for WrestleMania because it doesn't feel like they have the matches to make a WrestleMania. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to know who's going to win the Rumble this year. So I I think it's a little bit different this year. I think it's there's less predictable, but maybe in a bad way. Like sometimes I think when wrestling doesn't have the predictable outcome, it means it's being booked 
badly because the amount of wrestling we've watched by this point the thing that makes the most sense usually is the best way to book it if mm. that makes any sense so it, it feels a little i know it sounds weird that i'm saying predictability is right but if you're booking correctly i think or in a, in a, or in a good way or an effective way you'd usually predictable is not that bad now we haven't plugged our youtube channel in a while mainly because about halfway through last year we stopped updating it entirely but we are back on it this year and each week we're releasing a full episode on there from one year ago so do us a favor get on over there and follow the random wrestling review even if you don't end up watching any of the vids it'll be useful for us to get another subscription now tom you like you said about the val venus suggestion and yes. i've been trying i was actually the other day so i should make it clear what i mean by the val venus thing so about 2008 i think it was maybe 7 2007 2008 i started yearly going on about the idea that val venus should win the royal rumble based on the fact that it's not necessarily val venus that should win it but it's just somebody who has been around a while who's never really been a main event star who's never really been likely to win the royal rumble and certainly very unlikely to headline a wrestlemania but someone like that should win the royal rumble to show people that anyone could win it and on top of that you could then write this really simple story about the aging wrestler who never really made it to the top but was had won the rumble out of nowhere and had this real big chance all of a sudden to give it his all it's basically the, the it's basically the script to rocky one the first rocky film <laughs> effectively but, but for the person winning the rumble and I, I was thinking about this the other week i couldn't think who on today's roster would be the person who could fill that position i don't know if you've got any suggestion no because the problem is i think everyone who's on the roster that would fit that criteria of being a bit of a journeyman wrestler i'm sick of because they're probably in my list of cunts <laughs> and they've also <laughs> probably all been world champion because WWE yeah. gives everyone the belt at some point it's that that suggestion that people deserve the title i've seen this go around so often like the sense that oh so and so has worked really hard for so many years they deserve to be champion doesn't yeah. really work like that that's not how it works interesting one that but i just i just wondered about it because i still get excited by the rumble and i think maybe some people think it's devalued by the fact that we've got two a year now but actually quite i actually quite like that i quite like that we've got a man and a woman rumble the rumble matches just so it's still still unique you still only get it that one night of the year unless they do a, a greatest Royal rumble ever in saudi arabia or something and so i still really enjoy it but I can see that it, the thing that's got me this year is that WWE have concentrated on the surprises and promoted the surprises ahead of time. So like Mickey James is going to be in the Rumble, even though she's, I think, Impact Knockouts champion. She's going to be in the Royal Rumble this year. And you're like, well, it's not a surprise if you told us she's going to be in the match. The, what, going back to the Women's Rumble, we obviously watched last year's. And I remember at the time much referring the Women's Rumble because it, to some extent it's new. It's I haven't seen it before. Um, they had far more license to bring back some quote-unquote legends in it that haven't been stale and brought back in all these other previous rumbles, and it just made a nice change of pace from what um from what we what I've seen previously as well. Yeah, and I think also those surprises, those returning stars now are a lower level than they previously have been. I mean, I think we commented on this last year as well. Like Carlito, I think was one of the surprise entrants to last yeah. year's rumble, and it's like. That's from the period that we always talk about as being the period when we didn't really watch it. So 
they don't mean a lot to to me anyway those kinds of uh those kinds of surprises so yeah that, that's what we're gonna do we're gonna look at the royal rumble first uh, i think it's the only way we can do it we were, we obviously are trying to select moments from the shows to big to talk about first but i mean the rumble pretty much rules all right so we're gonna do the royal rumble last week the first half of the show took an hour and a half and it was just oh. on the rumble so um it's probably what it will do tonight these rumbles do take a little bit longer than most of the others they so do. there are only two of us at the moment so there might... are there are but who knows when we're coming up with bloody names for these people as well it might just take a bit longer that's true um obviously the beginning of the match um uh eric uh biscoff comes down <laughs> <laughs> he does it's a bit weird actually the beginning of this royal rumble match i didn't particularly i didn't think it was particularly good because nah. it starts off with whoever the is it is it fink doing the announcing still yes. at this point yeah, yeah. um and he starts to talk and then Eric Bischoff comes out and interrupts him. Now, that's not a problem. That's not necessarily a problem. The problem I have with this is that um, Finkel starts to talk about the rules of the Royal Rumble. And then there are about three segments before the Rumble starts mm. after Bischoff has interrupted him. It's really a, a weird, convoluted setup to get bischoff and Heyman out there but as you said uh, before the match starts bischoff comes out to the ring he says that he's confident the rule will win especially because they have the superior general manager he calls paul Heyman a joke who is the general manager of smackdown and he says he has the respect of everybody on rule Heyman then comes out Heyman attacks bischoff and they fight then austin comes down on a quad bike he asks them what the hell is going on he says they're wasting everyone's time like a couple of jackasses. He asks who started it. They both say the other started it. Bischoff is then stunned. Then Austin pretends to have a little toast with Paul Heyman with the beers and then gives Paul Heyman a stun as well, stunner as well and then leaves the ring. A couple of thoughts on this. Well, for a start, Austin's wearing these ad- tiny shorts. His shorts are tiny. Still rocking the leg braces, the knee braces, and he's wearing the tiny shorts. They're like denim cycling shorts. It's actually quite... It, it could be it could that could get you an asbo wearing those sorts of sh- wearing those <laughs> sorts of shorts in certain places you'll end up on a list i will say bischoff and Heyman sell a stunner lovely a lot better than i was expected especially poor Heyman, who does the old jump back up and flips onto his shoulders and back a la the rock which is very enjoyable <laughs> but it is a very bizarre way to start the rumble because people are still massively popping for Austin. So you're kind of at the beginning of it, you're always already kind of like giving the crowd not what they want, because it's not necessarily what what they want from the Royal Rumble match, but they're just doing this this weird segment, get a massive crowd pop. And I can imagine if you were in the crowd, you'd be really buzzing. So you're like, oh, Austin's just come out. We forgot to hear the music. He stunned a couple of people. And then it almost at the beginning of it makes it seem like the Rumble's a little bit of an afterthought. Mm. at least that's how it's presented so it is it was a it was a bizarre way and it's not what i would have done but at the at the end i also thought to myself send the crowd home happy have austin at the end but then i did think at the end of the rumble if you had i don't know say uh bischoff come out because the person who wins the rumbles on the raw roster come out and gloat and do that segment again it would take the shine away from the person who won the rumble so if you were determined to get austin out in front of the crowd and do something like that they could have done it i think a lot earlier in the show and had eric Bischoff come out after the second third match done that bit and just done it then rather than have it at the beginning of the rumble when i think about the way i take my notes okay so i write the name of the match down and then everything that comes after that i put yeah. under there and that in some ways mimics the feel of the show and the rhythm of the show because if i what if i'm in the crowd or i'm watching this live and i saw howard finkel start to talk about the raw rumble match and the rules i'm like right come on then this is it and then you get this segment and so for me it just feels like it's part of the rumble and you're like well it shouldn't be here and 
I think it's all part of I rather than it be about being putting Austin on the screen, it might be, but but rather than that, I think it's about this weird thing that WWE think they can convince everybody that they should care who they prefer out of Raw and SmackDown. Mm. And they base like the Survivor series on this most years these days is absolutely ridiculous the idea that anyone would give a fuck which of these two brand names in the wwe is better like no no who's got who cares who cares it's like they don't realize that people know it's all signed off by the same guy <laughs> yeah. they're not really in competition with each other and and especially and i hate that that's what the survivor series has become now as well because i hate the fact that all of a sudden they're all wearing raw t-shirts and smackdown <laughs> t-shirts it's, yeah. it's obscene absolutely offensive it's just stupid and what is also stupid is that after this we then go backstage so after the thinkers started talking about the rules and then been interrupted we don't just go launch straight into the match we then go backstage as terry runnels interviews goldberg prior to the rumble match and he's interrupted by brock lesnar who and lesnar says that nobody cares about goldberg goldberg says he's going to win the rumble and will then go to mania and win his title back uh, having about a month before this lost the uh, world heavyweight title back to triple h goldberg then pretends that hardcore holly is behind lesnar we'll talk about that later on in the show um and lesnar then seems worried nobody is there and then goldberg uh, intimates that lesnar is a coward and that's the end of this little segment here goldberg and lesnar backstage i don't mind this but again should just come before fink starts talking well and, and also similar to what we would say about things being massively telegraphed it massively telegraphs that he's going to come that that Brock Lesnar's going to come down to the ring and cost Goldberg his place in the Rumble. Yeah, I, d- I don't have a problem with that so much. Again, if I think about the fact that they did have a relatively strict brand split where you didn't get the Raw roster and the SmackDown roster just jumping over whenever they wanted to. The point is, is there was in, theoretically in the story, there's no other point in the calendar when they could have done this. They had to do it on a show where the both of them were on the show because they wouldn't be in the same building if not. And on top of that, it's more organic than Lesnar just randomly turning up on an episode of Raw and going, I want to fight Goldberg. That would have been silly. So I, well, I, I didn't mind this so much. I didn't know if there had been any previous prior to this. So I don't know if there'd been much. Yeah, I don't know if there'd been much, if anything. Um, I just thought the placing was strange. That's that's the mm. thing for me. I just thought, you, you know, we're in the mode of the Rumble now. Why are we going backstage? Um, and it's still not Rumble time yet, because then we see a shot of Mick Foley's empty chair. So we are told earlier in the show that Foley um, has been invited to take a seat at ringside. And um, JR then reluctantly says that Foley is a coward on the prompting of Jonathan Coachman, who is one of the three commentators for the night. No, sorry, I was wrong. It's Taz who says it, not not yeah. Jonathan Coachman. And I must admit, I want to quickly talk about the commentary for this rumble. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed JR and Taz for one very specific reason, which we'll talk about later. But I like the fact that at the beginning of it, Taz says this is my very first rumble, first time mm-hmm. commentating on a rumble, and seems genuinely really excited by it. And he, yeah, I, I, and I thought, he, I thought the two of them worked really well together. And I'm actually, I've been thinking about this quite recently. I like Taz on commentary. I think, I think the main reason why I quite like him is because when he's, he sounds different to everyone else, he's got that thick, heavy Brooklyn accent. He'll bring in things that other commentators don't usually bring in so he'll talk about the kind of technical aspects of suplexes and submission wrestling and things like that in commentary and i also really like his commentary on rampage as well and it's i've grown i've grown to really really quite enjoy taz as a commentator because again he doesn't sound like someone who's massively reproduced and when he says and when he says something that he knows is stupid or whatever he'll 
immediately call himself out on it or correct <laughs> himself, which again I, I quite like because it just say, it seems like he's a he's a normal person, not one of these people who is just basically being screamed at the entire time and being told to say exactly the the thing that he's being told to say. It's understandable because the people would find his commentary refreshing because these days, especially in WWE, they all just and maybe this is I mean this is partially because I barely ever watch WWE, but they all just I can't differentiate them. Mm. And it's not just about the sound of their voice, but it's also the way they talk, you know, the cadence of their voice. They've got they've been trained to say things in a very, very specific and precise way that Vince McMahon presumably is comfortable with. And it's the same as each other. And everyone kind of jokes about the pronouns thing. Vince, And that's part of it because he you know, nobody says he or she. They always just keep saying the name. And so there's just this constant hammer in your head of this is this is so and so this is their name this is their name all the time so that's part of it but then it's everything else as well around that makes them all sound almost exactly the same the only one that's different is the one who's on smackdown with michael cole and i can't remember his name oh pat mcafee that's the one but i can't stand him i find him so fucking oh, annoying. I, I, I quite like him but i think that's why mm. the, the pronouns thing i find especially funny because vincent man never used pronouns because he'd always go, one, two, he got him, he got him. Well, no, he always used pronouns, is what you mean. Yeah, sorry. The other way around. I, it, it, as I was learning um, Spanish in the first lockdown, I realised that I know nothing about grammar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you what I realised some time ago now, but, but it was strange, is that after school, I had no knowledge of what nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, or any of that kind of stuff was at all. I don't know whether our school, and we did go to the same school, just didn't teach that stuff, and everyone else got taught it, but I had no clue what it was. No, I just talk, mate. It just happens and it comes out. I still got a relatively decent grade in English language, and I did an English language A level, but I still didn't know what nouns and terms <laughs> and adjectives were. I admit, I still don't, apparently. <laughs> so, before the rumble, we still get one last little bit. Taz runs down his keys to victory, the first of which is to hide. I didn't take note of the others because they were quite basic, but that was, one, was one, of, one of them was conditioning. Yeah, that's right, conditioning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Finally, we get to the Royal Rumble. Our first two entrants are Chris Benoit and Randy Orton. Not to put the cart before the horse, but I thought it was a good place to kick in with our. Tyron Paxton of the week. During the show, Chris Benoit set a new record length of time for a competitor in the Royal Rumble when he lasted one hour, one minute and 30 seconds, having entered at number one and going all the way for the victory. Since that time, that has been bested twice. The first was a couple of years later when Rey Mysterio lasted one hour, two minutes and 12 seconds. And then in 2018, during the infamous Greatest Royal Rumble, which arguably shouldn't even count, Daniel Bryan lasted a whopping one hour, 16 minutes and five seconds, a record unlikely to be beaten. Tyron Paxton of the week. Imagine how thirsty you must have been after that. <laughs> yes, I can. I Yeah, I can well imagine. I'm thirsty just from doing this podcast, so yeah. I can well imagine that. I wake up after about four hours of sleep and I'm incredibly thirsty. I think about walking up the stairs and uh, there's, a, there's, there's a need for moisture in my mouth. Um, there's, there's a bottle of water strategically placed at the top of your stairs. So I've got a little bit of trivia for, for you here. And uh, I was originally anticipating there'd be two of you. So it's really just a challenge for yourself now, Tom. All right. So, um... As I said, Benoit broke the record here, but whose record did he beat? So the obvious answer is Flair, but I think it might be Shawn Michaels from 1996. 
No, it's not Shawn Michaels and it's not Ric Flair, even though during this match, they do suggest that Ric Flair is the record holder. Is it David Boy Smith? No, it's not David Boy Smith. So we watched Royal Rumble 95 last year, of course, as our first ever episode. And they the gaps between entrants were only a minute, so they didn't really last that long. Shawn Michaels and David Boy Smith, they were oh. like 30, 35 minutes, 40 minutes. The record previously was held from 1993 I'm not familiar with that rumble. You're familiar with his performance because I remember us talking about it a long time ago, so you may have forgotten now. Oh, Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund was the previous record holder. One hour, te- one hour, one minute and ten seconds in 1993. Oh, God. Oh, God. I remember when we when we watched that together. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, he is amazing. When he came in and no one cared about him, by, yeah. by the end, everybody wanted him to win. It was fantastic. It was a, a really memorable r- Rumble performance, I think, that Backlund one. Big but yeah, man. so he'd been the previous record holder before this one, but he is about to be beaten by Benoit. So Benoit and Randy Orton start the match. Benoit is super intense and hits a snap suplex on Orton, which is lovely. Orton fights back and they exchange blows. And that's kind of the story of the first couple of couple of minutes. Yeah, it's just quite intense, as you'd expect from um, Chris Benoit. I wonder if someone's like whispered in his ear, said to him, give, give him a little bit of a slap and around. Because apparently this is Randy Orton's, like when he was being a real dick kind of thing <laughs> backstage. And I also wonder if it's just like, give this young whippersnapper a taste of what it's really like. And he's, he's like, yeah, go on then. Because he fucking lays some shit in on him. Pretty, pretty heavy in that match, in that first opening two minutes. I wonder as well, though, whether or not this is Benoit knows he's going to win, right? And this is probably the biggest night of his career at this point. So he's probably like, Pumped. just I'm everything, every yeah, basically everything I always do, but up to even uh, even further than that, you know, he, I mean, he's going to go absolutely extreme in terms of uh, that kind of intensity. I realised we haven't done our hopes and fears. We haven't done our hopes and fears. Why don't we do it now? So I've got, I've basically, so I'll do, if we're going to do the first part of the show in terms of um, just the rumble, I'll do my hopes and fears about the rumble match. Okay. And then, um, then, then we go back to the second half. I'll do my hopes and fears about the rest of it. Okay. So my hope, my, I don't really, it's a bit of both. It's more of a fear. I think is Benoit winning the rumble and feeling a bit horrible about it. If I'm being honest, mm. that was my fear. There's been like, because I've seen this rumble before, but I couldn't remember anything about it. But obviously, I knew that Chris Benoit won. And it's hard. I, I'm struggling. The more older I get, I'm starting to find a little bit, I'm finding Chris Benoit matches more problematic than I used to. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding Benoit matches are a lot less problematic than I used to, but I don't know if that's just the distance in time now. We're talking 14 years and 15 years, in fact, it will be this year. And it, it just feels like it's a long time ago. I, I do struggle with it. We've seen a couple of times where he's had some bad blows to the head. That's where I struggle with it, because then you're like, well, there's a direct correlation, arguably, between that and what would come in his life. But in terms of most of the time, I, I don't really have a trouble with that. I didn't know what to think. I know I've seen it before. But as you said, as you said, I I couldn't remember anything about it either. And my memory of it, if the only memory I had of it was that it's probably one that people quite liked because of who won and because of the fact that as a consequence of who won, it was probably seen as being quite a good, good match. But my memory, and I don't know where that memory was from, was that it was only okay. But I wasn't through a memory of being like, I remember this and it's only okay. It was more, my memory is that it's only okay, even if I can't remember anything about it. I don't know if that makes any sense. The feeling I had for it was that it was okay, but I couldn't couldn't say why. So entrant number three is Western Supermare's finest, Mark Henry. I've got no notes after his entrance because not a lot happens. He just gets added to the mix. Yeah, I mean, it's a pre-Western Supermare, Mark Henry, isn't it? Mm. Dressed a little bit like a like a member of the Golden State Warriors and rocking an, an intense-looking camel toe. <laughs> 
How's he got a camel toe? It just looks like it. It's gross. It's horrible. <laughs> and it comes down, what is weird as well, <clears throat> obviously this is a pre, like, um, Hall of Pain, Mark Henry. And he comes down, he's evidently kind of partnered with Teddy Long at that point. It comes down to Teddy Long's music, which I was a bit like, oh, I didn't really like that. I prefer this 3 6 Mafia, somebody's going to get their ass kicked music. Yeah. yeah, well, I guess given his Western Supermare roots, then surely Donkey Toe is more, uh, more apt. <laughs> Number four in the Rumble is Tajiri or Tahini, I think, as we've uh, named him. One thing I've noticed, I've noted here, and it it makes less sense saying it now because, um, you know, it's actually something I noticed over the course of the night. This was in Philadelphia, this show, yeah. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But there was an underwhelming response to all of the ECW alumni all the way through it. And I think, actually, some of this show is booked to emphasize some of the re- the, some of the yeah. ECW alumni and they all fall flat. It just doesn't doesn't seem to work at any point, including when Paul Heyman came out earlier on. Yeah. We saw him there at Bischoff. Just not um, there was a muted response to him. A few people chanting ECW, but it didn't really work. And the same was true here when Tajiri came out. Yeah. Um. The thing I noted as well is that him and Benoit make a beeline for each other when they come in, and they absolutely beat the piss out of each other. It's really good. And I did think to myself, there must be like a Tajiri and Benoit match knocking around somewhere that I bet is amazing. Probably, yeah. Probably not in ECW, though, because obviously Benoit would have gone before Tajiri turned up, but probably somewhere in WWE. Somewhere, yeah. So there's a couple of German suplexes by Benoit and Tajiri, and then um, Mark Henry almost chucks out Orton before we get the number five entrant, which is Bradshaw. So Bradshaw comes in, clothesline from hell on Tajiri and on Mark Henry and on Randy Orton. Then he goes for one on Benoit, but um, Benoit counters into the crossface. Bradshaw then tries to get Benoit up and out of the ring, um, but Benoit reverses and Bradshaw becomes the first elimination, which i got to say was an absolutely delightful way to start things off. Well, it's weird. Bradshaw's really weird because he's somewhere between being APA. Well, he's got still got the APA music, mm. um, but he looks like JBL because he's got his hair cut a lot shorter, still walking like he shit himself when he comes <laughs> down to the ring. But I will say, like, JBL is, is, again, problematic. You hear about his bully behaviour backstage, about him being deliberately stiff on people, the the footage that we saw of him, like, kicking the shit out of Blue Meanie at one night stand. He's all a very unedifying character. That being said, those fucking clotheslines are amazing. <laughs> it's so amazing to watch. It's so brutal. And you're like, fuck me. But that's, that's how I feel. Like, sometimes when I get out of bed in the morning, I feel like I've just been it with a clothesline from hell when I get up. <laughs> I don't, there's something about it for me, the clothesline from hell, which I, you're right, it does look brutal, but I think it's because it really is brutal. You know what mm. I mean? I think he absolutely just doesn't give a fuck what he who what pain he's causing to his opponent. And I don't think he cares. You know, I think with Benoit, even with Benoit, I feel like there's a sense that he only does laser in really bad when he's against someone who's willing. Mm. Who, who wants that kind of effect Bradshaw will just do it against anyone or at least that's the feeling I've always got yeah. the impression I've always got he just doesn't care like it wouldn't matter who he's in there with he's going to absolutely wallop them with his lariat and you know it, it does look good and most of the opponents in here probably were fine with it but it just usually leaves me a bit of a bad taste in my mouth having said that here i think it was desperately required mm. they just felt like a little bit of a pedestrian start for me this this match after the first two it's a bit slow isn't it i just i mean even the reaction to the first two you know ben Juan orton are not small names in the wwe by this point i just didn't feel like the crowd were really into it that much and i put that down to what we talked about at the beginning of the show with all the shenanigans with bischoff and Heyman and austin coming out and then the backstage interview then the commentators talking for a couple of minutes like it just felt like people had had to wait 
wait quite a long time for the rumble to start after they thought it was going to start. Yeah. And I think it really took the, the wind out of the sails of the fans. And he, Bradshaw, came in and I think his bit actually did bring the pace up and got people kind of invested a bit more. So I was actually, I did think this worked quite well. I think as well, to some extent, you're always waiting for the first elimination, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose so. So number six is Rhino. Again, same sort of thing with him. Muted response for an ECW alumni. Tadiri does a sort of tarantula on Henry. It's unfortunate. It can't get Mark Henry's other foot up. No. So he's got one foot in the tarantula, but not the other. But that would have been mighty if he'd have managed to do that. Rhino then gores Mark Henry whilst Tajiri still half got the um, half got the tarantula on. And then Benoit charges Mark Henry and Mark Henry falls, tumbles over the top rope. Yeah, that's a really cool elimination of mm. um of Tajiri. It's really, really cool. Tough. Rhino Gores, Mark Henry, and Tajiri, and as a result, Tajiri falls off. Yeah, that's, that's right. a really, really cool elimination. And then uh, Mark Henry, as you said, then gets eliminated. And I'm glad that he gets eliminated because I tend to write in initials when I'm writing people's names. And the next person <laughs> is Matt Hardy. So I had two <laughs> MHs. So I was really pleased that uh, that was how it went down. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I just thought this bit was actually really, really cool. It's just a shame Tajiri hadn't quite applied the tarantula properly because yeah. if he had, yeah, I'd be waxing lyrical about this bit. I just thought it was great. As you said, number seven is Matt Hardy. He then uh, comes out and hits Rido with a side effect. Uh, Benoit then almost eliminates Matt Hardy, but he hangs on. You haven't got a name for Matt Hardy. No, and also I've got Rhino, uh, Rhino. <laughs> There's got to be something better than this. I will come up with something. Um, Matt Hardy, no, we don't. I mean, I could think of like a, a Dave Matt. No. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really got much to say about Matt Hardy, only that he is good value in a rumble for almost getting eliminated. He's one of those guys who's quite good at getting thrown over the top rope and then looking like he's about to get eliminated and then pulling himself back up onto the apron and going underneath the rope. He's got he's got that, that in his locker, old Matt Hardy. <laughs> Underrated Matt Hardy, as we call him from now on. Indeed. And number eight is Scott Steiner, who comes in and clotheslines everyone. He hits Orton with a T-bone suplex, Benoit with a belly-to-belly suplex, and then Rhino with another T-bone suplex. Benoit then hits some rolling Germans on Steiner. Mm. So I was watching this, and I was like, because Scott Steiner's 42 at this stage, and he moves like he's about 80. Yeah, he does move it's slowly. so fucked and so massive for his body as well that he just moves like he's like a fucking octogenarian that being said I, and this at this point i thought this is gonna be a very suplexy rumble because if benoit's in it from the entire match he's not shy throwing a suplex scott steiner is i imagine that kurt angle and chris jericho were going to be in it who again not chris, chris jericho not so much but he's still he'll bust out a nice german suplex or a tiger suplex with a bridge now and again so i did think to myself this is gonna be a very suplexy rumble with the addition of scott steiner as well you know i've, I've enjoyed watching Su- uh, scott steiner i was gonna call him suplex steiner for a minute which is <laughs> probably fair to be honest but yeah he's so he's so old by this point or it feels like he's so old and amazingly he still occasionally has matches now i think by this point in wwe had, had you know they'd got the use out of him they wanted the previous year's rumble speaking <laughs> for itself <laughs> oh god that's horrendous um i think as well i mean obviously there was quite a long period i mean i don't from what we what we saw from wcw sin the last ever wcw pay-per-view mm. he wrestled in that it wasn't great admittedly but he was better and he evidently like after the actual last pay-per-view which would have been what greed between then and him returning like two years later i wonder if that break just really well he, he picked up an injury as well so he wrestled on the last nitro ever with a, I think it was a back injury. And it was one of the reasons why WWE were convinced to hire him, strangely enough, is that 
he had obviously had a reputation of being quite difficult, but the fact that he um, cooperated with the WWE on the last Nitro ever and was you know professional enough and came in and did the job, he was the champion, of course, going into that show and dropped the belt to Booker T, actually changed their minds on him and thought he, they thought he might be actually someone they could hire in the future. But he did have a back injury um, at that point. And so I think partially it's the injury. And secondly, you're probably right, the, the then break and not being able to immediately get back to action probably did do for him. I will say, though, again, over the, la- over the course of this last year, I've become a bit of a Scott Steiner guy. Mm, massively but, for me. Yeah. And the other thing is, as well, I meant to tell you this, I meant to send this to you the other day. I saw online, I didn't get around to watching it, a match from Superstars in 1994, the Steiner Brothers versus Brett and Owen. I did see something posted the other day about that, actually, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, I can't remember what it was, but that was, I might have to give that a look, because it'll be on yeah. the, uh, the network. Yeah, uh, you know it's going to be amazing. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. Number nine is Matt Morgan. He comes out, does a sit-out powerbomb on Benoit, then delivers a big boot to Matt Hardy, and that's the only note I've got between his entrance and the next. Like Matt Morgan is properly like proper generic early two thousands WWE big lump, isn't he? I mean, I know he did he go on to have like some a modicum of success in TNA. Not really. No. So I just don't I don't have any affinity towards Matt Morgan. Again, like I said earlier, period of the of the you know that I wasn't watching, and I've got I've literally got nothing nothing about him. I remember watching Survivor Series two thousand four about i don't know six or seven years ago and there's a whole team of wrestlers that are like matt morgan I think yeah, yeah. luther reigns is on the same team as him and mark jindrak's on the same team as him and they're all the same guy basically they're all big tall muscular decent looking but really bland and yeah. quite green wrestlers and it's almost like vince had gone on a had gone on a binge of bringing in muscle <laughs> muscle guys to sort of yeah. uh, fill out his roster on and morgan just uh, probably the most high profile of them main probably because he was the biggest i think he was just the biggest and uh, there's probably also a part of it which was we've just made brock lesnar into a superstar and he looks similar got a similar build and that so we could probably do it again, but of course that that just ignores the fact that Lesnar was just super talented. Yeah, there's a there's a difference. Like even Brock's got this weird charisma, and the thing is, like you can people will always criticize criticism at me, and I've and I've been I've been known to criticize Brock Lesnar in my time as well, because and like saying that he doesn't really like it or whatever. And you know, you, every now and again you make these little theories about, about you about how someone feels about something based on what you how you feel about them, which is very much where my Brock Lesnar's lazy and doesn't come about carrot wrestling theories have come from in the past. But he's so fucking good at it, like naturally good at it, and not just the athleticism, not just the wrestling aspect of it and being able to technically put moves together but his facial expressions his selling his his understanding of what to do in a ring is freakishly good and it's not just that he's a big guy it's that he's a big guy who gets it yeah i mean i would make a more nuanced point about what you said when he talked about the the perception that maybe that he's lazy and doesn't care about the about wrestling i wouldn't say he's lazy at all and I wouldn't say he doesn't care. I just think that he doesn't, he's not a fan. That's the difference. I think when he turns up, he turns up to work and that's yeah. it. You know what I mean? He's not turning up like an Adam Cole or a Daniel Bryan or someone who turns up to enjoy himself and have great matches. That's not what he's there to do. No. 
he's there to work and he works hard and he does it well but he doesn't love it and that's not i don't think that's a perception issue i think there's been lots of there's been quite a lot of reports to that effect over over time and mm. uh, yeah and the difference is there is that obviously he knows if he performs well he'll make more money as well hence why he does so well as well i think i think sometimes he's demotivated and i think that's because sometimes he doesn't enjoy the work i think the the, the one that's most uh blatant is the the year at wrestlemania when he fought 14 ambrose Ugh. i think you know that that was a demotivated brock lesnar but when he's motivated he is he's spectacular yeah and also i feel like as well i feel like so i remember the first time so we're going on a bit of a tangent now we need to get through this fucking rumble but you know when, when he um had the, the suplex match with john cena which was absolutely phenomenal at the time mm. i think that that got garnered such a reaction that was so big that i think he was probably told to work that way for a, a, about another two years to just do that which again i can imagine him being like well i do it's a bit boring. I don't necessarily want to do that. I mean, every match because it makes it doesn't make it special anymore. I mean, I do know after that after that match there was a triple threat with those two and Seth Rollins, which is also amazing. But all the singles match af- matches afterwards all kind of ended up being almost a carbon copy of that match, and then that being the end of it, you know. Whereas I think now we're, we're at a different phase. Admittedly, I haven't seen hardly anything of Lesnar at all, but I think that that's kind of they've moved on from trying to replicate that feeling from that match that was so important and and quite game-changing at the time for WWE. Yeah, I think they're just really eager to to maintain a level of aura around Brock Lesnar that Mm. they can't do with anyone else because they're just so overexposed. Anyway, we really have gone in a tangent. Let's get back to the Royal Rumble match. That's what Matt Morgan will do to you. (laughs) Anything to get away from the blueprint. Number 10 is... The Hurricane. He comes in with a crossbody on Matt Hardy, then squares off with Matt Morgan doing his kind of pretending to be a superhero bit. Um, but he gets powered out uh, by him. Steiner and Orton then appear to be engaged in. <laughs> this is <laughs> I just I was just reading this, not even thinking about what I was saying for a minute then. But there's this is the bit. Right. So after Hurricane goes out, mm-hmm. Randy Orton and Scott Steiner are fighting and they're on the floor. And I think Steiner's on top of Orton. It genuinely looks like they are having missionary position sex. <laughs> I don't even, they're not even doing anything. They're literally just led on the floor. Steiner on top of Orton, rubbing up against each other. And they're there for like a half a minute. It's not like a momentary kind of mess up. It's almost as if Steiner stopped being able to, to walk. He can get up. And there, and Orton's not strong enough to push him off go back and watch it I will, I will. number 11 is booker t booker t chops steiner down and scissor kicks him uh and that's again that's the only notes i've got on booker t yeah. well i think of booker t uh in wrf i don't think of this booker t i think of him a little bit later a bit slightly longer dreadlocks better in my opinion he's good he's obviously good because he's always been a good wrestler as booker t but there's not really much much to him at this point well this is the thing see so booker t here what does he last? He lasts like um, 10 minutes, I think. It's not a particularly notable run out in the Rumble. And yet he was in that match with Triple H the year before at WrestleMania 19. And it kind of just shows you what that did to him, that kind of that WrestleMania match with Triple H, that here he is and he just doesn't have a very notable time at all of it. We say that, but he does eliminate Scott Steiner. And he also eliminates Kane. Yes. After he comes in, Booker T does indeed eliminate Scott Steiner. And then Kane 
choke slams Benoit Morgan and side slams Matt Hardy, which is the typical Kane entrance. I think we pretty much every time Kane comes into Rumble, that's exactly what he does. Then Rhino goes for the gore, but Kane hits a big boot as he runs towards him. Then Kane choke slams Orton. So that's your that's your Kane entrance covered. Yeah, Kane. This is when um, Jr. says that Kane has the record of eliminations in a Rumble twice as he's walking down the ramp. <laughs> so he says it. <laughs> Taz says something, and then and then JR says it again. Bless him. And this is when, in my mind, this is when Kane is actually a spookiest Kane okay. in this period. <laughs> this is not long, is it, after he's taken the mask off? I think it's the fact that his head is shaved up to a point. Right. He's still got like from the top, from about halfway point on the top of his head down to the back and sides is still there. Terrifying. Then number thirteen, nobody comes out because Taker's music comes on. So then Taker's music comes on, the lights go out. This is the bong, isn't it? In fact. Oh, that, that might be right, actually. Yeah, you yeah. might be right. But anyway, the lights go off. The bong comes on or take his music. Something happens here. Um, Kane is distracted. Booker T then eliminates Kane from behind. I mean, as the lights come back on and Kane starts to walk back to the dressing room, Spike Dudley then emerges as the apparent uh, proper entrant at number 13. And Kane chokeslams Spike Dudley on the stage. And we don't see Spike Dudley for the rest of the night. Um, Spike Dudley gets fucking killed by Kane. It's such a high choke slab onto the fucking, onto the entrance ramp. It looks absolutely brutal. I'm not surprised that he didn't come down to it, poor cunt. I mean, later on in the Rumble, we'll talk about this again as he comes down, but something happens to Nunzio. Very minor. And he doesn't get back into the Rumble for bloody ages. <laughs> so Yes, but I think that is more about Nunzio than anybody else. But we'll right. get to that. It's, it's weak pop tolerance for pain. Number 14 is Rikishi. Benoit backdrops Rhino out of the match after Rikishi enters, and then Rikishi stinks face Matt Morgan. Couldn't happen to a more deserving guy. Yeah, I bet you're a fucking prick. So I've got a, a little thing. This is this, this but when Rikishi came down, I so in the ring at the moment we got Rikishi, we got we we haven't got Kane, but we've had him in the ring. We've got we've had Matt Hardy, Rhino, all included in this. Uh, Benoit's kind of posted it. Bradshaw's definitely there. And I'm thinking to myself, it's quite weird seeing Randy Orton being in, being in the ring with all these kind of like staples from the Attitude Era, like really, really like bridging a gap. I find at this point um and i don't know why it was for some reason it was rikishi coming down that made me think of it more mm. so than anyone else i was like oh this is quite interesting it really just showed like the longevity of him because it's what 2004 so we're talking what 17 years you gotta remember that orton cena lesnar and batista all debuted in 2002 yeah so it's 20 years ago that yeah. they all debuted orton is still going Uh, As a a full-time, as far as I know, a full-timer. Longevity is certainly true. And I guess also the thing that maybe sticks out about Rikishi is he wasn't around much after this either. No. So whereas a lot of them did at least continue for a number of years. So, yeah, then we get uh, number 15, which is Rene Dupree. Dupree eliminates Matt Hardy. But as he's uh, as he's celebrating, he turns into a a Rikishi thrust kick and is also eliminated. Well, so uh, this bit. I'm, I'm chuckling to myself so much about Rene Dupree's little dance that he does at the top of the stage as he comes down. I'm already laughing at that. Then, as he said, eliminates Matt and then starts doing the little dance in the ring and then gets kicked out of the ring. And I was like, come on, Rene Dupree. And it made me think to myself, thinking, you've got uh, a friend's wedding to go to in June. I'm uh, I'm very seriously contemplating busting out the old Rene Dupree dance <laughs> on the dance later on. And the, the old Alex Wright as well. No, yeah, definitely do that. Because because at that point, I'm the best man at this wedding, so I'm going to be pretty, pretty, I would have been stress drinking 
Oh no, I won't have been stress drinking prior to the speeches, and I will be trying to catch up. Yes, exactly. So I'll be fucking Alex writing all over the shop and doing the old Rene Dupree. That'd be stuff. <laughs> um, I, I look forward to that. We'll try and get a video of it and, and post it on the socials. Otherwise, uh, otherwise it'll be lost on the audience at that wedding. And you, yeah, you guys have got to wait until like June, <laughs> the end of June, for that to get posted. But still. Hey they'll wait tom they'll wait for they that will. kind of golden oh, stuff so number 16 then is a train after a train comes in benoit eliminates matt morgan and orton eliminates rikishi and then booker t so we're starting to whittle down a little bit here mm. i didn't think he looked that hairy he had a so it's almost like he shaved and now had a six o'clock shadow all <laughs> over his back <laughs> Um, so then we have got at number 17, Sean Benjamin. Uh, Benoit eliminates A-Train while Benjamin comes to the ring. So we kind of almost missed that. They do a replay for it, though. Benjamin misses a kick and then Orton uses his momentum to help him out of the ring, which means we are back to Orton and Benoit on their own. And they fight for a bit and then heads collide and both go down. Yeah, this that's a nice little nice little transition that is. Um, I quite like it when they do that in a rumble. They and then they can kind of try to build a story a little bit around these two people. The singlet that Sean Benjamin's wearing is truly appalling. Um, it's part of the world's greatest tag team at that time with Charlie Haas, but it's not the world's greatest tag team attire. I can tell you that much. There's no powers of pain, is what I'll say <laughs> that. It's at this point as well where I kind of start start thinking to myself how much I like Taz on commentary. Yeah. And then the next bit happens. And can I can I do this bit? Take it away. So the next entrance is uh, basically there's uh, what, what number are we? 16, 17? 18. 18. So um, some bloke runs down with a very unconvincing wig and introduces Ernest the Cat Miller, who's wearing an incredible cape. And me and old man have referred to this many times. They run down to the ring. Obviously, Benoit and Orton are on the ground. It's uh, Ernest the Cat's Miller's somebody called my mama. And he <laughs> comes into the ring. He's dancing away. And Taz is singing along to it, going, somebody called my mama. And he goes, come on, JR, somebody called my mama. And he's having, this, he's having a lovely time. JR goes, he can't dance his way to the main event of WrestleMania. And then both the cat and the announcer get chucked out. And then Taz goes, good. Enough of the dancing. I'm sick of the dancing. <laughs> he's clearly having the time of his life. And that is why Taz is my MVP of this. Oh, wow. Lovely. I enjoyed it so much. And I can remember there's there's another, um, we, I, we may have discussed this on the podcast before, but there's another amazing bit of Taz chemistry. And it's on the, there's a Royal Rumble, uh, uh, Battle Royal before WrestleMania 24, I think. And Michael Cole and Taz are on commentary. And they're clearly just having an, a fucking laugh, an absolute laugh, a whale of a time, a hoot, some might say. And there, it's really crap. There's a bit where, like, Snitsky is, like, battling someone in the corner, and he's just, Snitsky's absolutely pissing himself at that point. And at the end of it, <laughs> I can't remember who wins it. I think it might actually be Snitsky that wins it. And uh, Michael Cole <laughs> says to Taz, boy, I'm sure glad we drew the straw to call this match. <laughs> and then it cuts back and they're both in pieces in the background you see them both doubled over having a lovely time so i think taz might be a bit of a lad well i think interestingly enough as well you uh, i think we well, may have been old man sang that same thing to somebody called my mama and did the bit where you say come yeah. on jr in the episode two weeks ago so yeah, we yeah we watched it like we, I remember the type of we is when we were living. I think it was before the three of us lived together. So me and old man lived in town, and we were just watching this rumble one day, and both of us being like, "This is absolutely amazing," and acknowledging the greatness of that moment at the same time. That's, that is pretty amazing, and it's amazing that we had a we a precursor to it just a couple of weeks ago. 
So then number 19 is Kurt Angle. And I've written here, Angle and Benoit hit each other hard. And the oh, hard is in capitals. The chemistry between those two is absolutely amazing. They obviously did have a couple of um, promos, a, a couple of like angles, um, so to speak, together. Because I can remember one of my favourite matches of all time is the match between Chris, Ang- uh, Chris Angle. Kurt Benoit. Kurt Benoit. There's a match between the two of them at the Rumble the previous year, 2003, which is absolutely phenomenal. And they obviously had other matches, but it's one of those things where, like, you know, as soon as they both get into the ring together, they just got something. Do you know what I mean? And they're both obviously very like-minded. They're like, we're going to fucking lay it on each other now. And what you were saying earlier, actually, about people hitting people harder and but only like when you say like Benoit only does it to people who are like-minded so you watch him and Eddie Guerrero really lay into each other him and Benoit laying into each other him and um, Angle laying into each other like I think that's I think that's more on the snug side rather than the stiff side as such I mean the chops are always going to be stiff but like laying it in like when when they only when they need to and the chemistry between these two is just absolutely phenomenal that I could watch those two in matches all fucking day well, we may make you do that for a future episode. <laughs> well, like, um, like in um, Clockwork Orange, you just got like matchsticks on my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, every Benoit, every time, every single instance of Benoit and Angle in any kind of match with each other. Yeah. So probably running through like obscure matches on SmackDown where there was a six-man tag, but yeah. we only show you the two minutes in which Benoit and Angle share the ring against yeah. each other. <laughs> Um, number 20 is Rico. Uh, and then we have Benoit with some rolling Germans on angle. So he's he's very much employing the German suplex in this match. He's got, Rico has got bizarre get up on. Yes, he has like very he's strange. Got, he's got like 94 era macho man style tights on. And with, with, with what looks like sting makeup. It looks like <laughs> he's got like stings makeup on, like surface stings makeup. And he's got these ridiculously massive mutton chops going on at the same time very very interesting like even for 2004 i think that's quite an extreme look yeah i didn't know what to think here rico this must be right towards the end of rico's run not that there was a particularly standout one and that is evident in the fact that orton then rkos and eliminates rico before the next entrant but doesn't he doesn't he come out to the music that billy and chuck had the you yeah because he was their manager not by then but when they first were around, he was their manager. And he, just, he was like, I'm not letting that banger go to waste. <laughs> Definitely. Number 21 is Test. Uh, then in the ring, Orton hits an RKO on Angle. Then the cameras go backstage to find Test knocked out on the floor. And then Austin is there and he's asking someone who's off camera what the hell they're doing. He then sends that person to replace Test and take their position in the rumble. And he tells him to get to the ring. We then see Mick Foley emerge from the backstage and he comes to the ring and brawls with Randy Orton. Foley does his clothesline over the top with Orton, taking both men out of the match. And then Foley continues in t- his attack on Orton outside the ring and the two fight. And Mick Foley does his thing with the steel steps. And uh, yeah, that that's all chaotic going on. I mean, if you're going to use Tess in the Royal Rumble, this is about the best use of him, isn't it? I agree. And I'll tell you what, one thing Austin doesn't have time for. We've kind of seen it in the opening package. 
in the in the opening segment before us. He ain't got time for shenanigans. <laughs> he's very serious. He's very business focused, isn't he? He's like, come on, we cannot have any nonsense today. I don't want any nonsense. <laughs> if we have nonsense, I'm gonna have to go there and sort it out, and you're gonna know that I'm unamused. <laughs> um, the entrance of Foley is amazing. This is the one. This is the one pop, and I, I don't think that's because he's an ex-WCW guy. It's because it's Mick Foley, and it's it's great. Realistically, again, it's probably really te- telegraphed by the fact that he's not at ringside, and they make they're at great pains to state that. But when he comes down to the ring as the 21st entrance, it's amazing. Randy Orton's facial expression when he comes down is awesome, and I love the fact that Mick clotheslines him, takes him over the top rope, doesn't give a shit about winning the Rumble. He just wants to get at Randy Orton. And I think that was really, I think this segment was really well booked. When they're fighting in the outside, there's a couple of horrible chair shots from Randy Orton to Mick Foley, which again, like at the time, we didn't really think too much of, but looking back again with the 2021, you know, viewpoint on it, it's pretty galling to see, especially when we know what happened to the person who would eventually go on to win this Rumble after such impactful moves on their head. That being said, it's really good. And they carry on fighting up the ramp. The unprotected chair shot you talked about, you're right, it is pretty rough. In Earlier in the night, there's some chair shots that take place and they're not unprotected. So they get their hands up and you're just like, it's Foley. It's almost like one of the things he does because he, I mean, especially by 2004, hasn't wrestled for, what, three years by this point? Possibly four fact and he's probably just relying on those spots because he's got what else is he going to do he's not yeah. he's not going to be he's not he's never been an athlete and now he's four years past his retirement date but what i will say is that because I've, I've obviously seen the tag match at wrestlemania with him and the rock versus evolution what i've never watched is the match at backlash between the two of them between Mick Foley and Randy Orton which I've heard is very very good so I think I'm going to go back and watch that on the strength of the their both of their performance in this segment of this Royal Rumble yeah for me this is where the match started I thought this is where the match started to really pick up actually so as I said for me when it, when it started out it was a little bit tepid is probably the word i would use and then jbl came in and temporarily the temperature has risen because of the fact that he came in with a lot of impact but then things went back to to being quite tepid angle come out was a bit better and that was more exciting and we did the we had the undertaker bit which was quite cool but overall the first 20 entrants passed without too much excitement for me. Then this happened, and for me, it really took things up a notch. And I think from this point onwards, they are building towards the end of the match. But the end of the match doesn't come when the 30th entrant comes out, as so often happens. It comes quite some time after that point. And so I think it's actually from this point on a really well-worked contest. I agree with you, but I'm going to... I think the match turns on a different entrance. Ernest the Catman. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice reset. It almost lets them go back to the beginning of the match again mm. by just having Orton and Christian uh, Christian Orton and uh, Chris Benoit then you get Angle picks up Rico near you know but he had to go in somewhere and then from then on I'm, I'm in as well so I reckon the turning point is actually when big Ernest Miller comes in I think it's a very good call Hang on, we have a surprise entrance to the Royal Rumble match, quite literally, because we're still only on entrant number 22, uh, and we've got Matt, Matt Roberts. Matt, joining us halfway through the episode. Good to see you. Isn't that the best timing imaginable? Evening, gents. How are we? <laughs> <laughs> we're good, mate. We're good. Unfortunately, you've missed the uh, what is my highlight of the match, of the uh, of the Rumble, which is Ernest the Cat Miller's cameo. Well, do you know what? I'm quite happy because, believe it or not, that was one of my lowlights of the match. So I'm quite glad I missed that bit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think Matt's way more serious than you are, Tom, when it comes to to uh, his enjoyment of of different bits and pieces. And <laughs> but Tom and Old Man have been absolutely going on about that for about fifteen years. That spot. So I think he was just so excited to see it. I think when Old Man realizes that this is the rumble, he's gonna be <laughs> <laughs> the poor old cunt. He's, he's gonna be cunt. listening to this and be like, "Oh, what? How did I miss that?" Do you know what I'm he's gonna do? That it was so quick. It was just such a quick elimination. So thank God for that. <laughs> do you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna call his mama. <laughs> oh God! Wow. <laughs> so as I was saying, number twenty-two in the rumble was Christian. The fight between Foley and Orton is continuing at this point, uh, and we said that Orton grabbed a steel chair, hits Foley in the head twice with it, uh, unprotected he- uh, chair shots to the head they then brought back up the entrance ramp matt what did you uh what did you make of uh the whole mick foley bit for me it was uh it was one of the highlights of the match i i really enjoyed this and it really reminded me of how awesome the the orton and foley food was they just gelled really well together and it like it really did remind me of how instrumental mick foley could be in helping in helping make a new guy because you know it's it's hard to you know to remember you know to remember now going back to to that time where Randy Orton wasn't as big as deal as he is now that this was the start of something really good and and Foley really helped put him on the map this was really good yeah we 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 both really we both really enjoyed it and I think that that's a really good point because Foley was never going to just come back and just do a major match he wasn't just going to go right i'll wrestle triple h in a in a big match you know somebody he'd already worked with it was always going to be someone he was interested or intrigued to work with that he hadn't worked with before that was the only way i think he would ever likely to come back but there's obviously the, the great um angle that he has you know two years later with edge as well yeah which again does the same thing i i loved that angle i thought it was really well done and i think the fact that like like you said just then Matt, i i think that really helped elevate edge personally to being more than just a bullshit generic hill they gave they gave edge a bit of an edge <laughs> number 23 is nunzio still we've got mick foley around orton still sort of out there and foley put socko on nunzio. <laughs> um orton then low blows foley and then quickly departs foley then stalks after him backstage meanwhile angle german suplexes both christian and benoit and nunzio takes a seat at ringside and watches the action i love it when mick foley and terry funk do like really random stupid shit and i, I love the fact that he's just like fuck it <laughs> it's just it's such a great like it's just like what are you doing you fucking idiot you're fighting this the other guy he just like, got distracted and decided to attack poor nunzio i just oh, i just find it so amusing when he does that and i love it when but yeah, i said with foley it's, it's, he's very much channeling his terry funk now i think isn't he and uh, i loved it I, I felt sorry for Nunzio because the, the second that you hear that music hit, you think, whichever guy comes out, you know this poor block is just going to get it from Sarko. Yeah, I think you're right, though, about the, the Terry Funk thing. I think that is definitely what he's doing. It's just a I, I, th- I think it's quite a nice little character bit as well. The sense that he's he's unhinged. That's who he is. He's unhinged. And you're unlucky. Nunzio has come along unluckily you are there at that time you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and foley it's just handed that bit and it didn't need to do anything it didn't the only thing it elevated actually was what nunzio did for the rest of the, the show because then it allowed nunzio to do that but it still felt in keeping with foley even though it made no sense for him to do it if he was trying to just beat up randy orton so yeah i like that it was good number 24 is the big show um <laughs> someone wasn't happy about big show then. <laughs> so i've got here that big show is looking absolutely humongous and 
old. I, I think he really benefits from shaving his head. I've got to be quite honest, because at this point, his, his hair is quite thinning. He's he's losing it on top. He, do, he looks almost as bad as old man did before he made the choice. But then he comes in and he dominates everybody in the ring. So that's the big show into the match. It's a little bit later that Taz says this. When he's going, he's going around giving people the old chops, the old slaps on the chest. The typewriter like hands of the big show. It's <laughs> <laughs> a strange adjective. There you go, Tinker. You know what that word means. Um, a strange adjective <laughs> used to describe the size of someone's hands to compare them to an outdated, antiquated typing device. That is probably the most impressive vocal gymnastics you've ever done in your life, then, Tom. Very much so. Well, I got in front of a guest. In front of a guest, don't I? I got to put on my airs and graces. Big sure with his typewriting hands. How bizarre! But yeah, I mean, aside from his typewriting hands, I mean, yeah, it, it was actually kind of sad. And as soon as he came out, that's the first thing I thought. I was like, Good God, he's he's not in the best shape of his career here. And I think the the one thing that's really interesting to note as well is I'm not sure if people remember, but this was one of Big Show's biggest pushes he ever received in his career at this point i mean around about you know the so i was playing between 2002 and sort of 2004 5 you know he was positioned as one of the top guys you know having runs with brock and angle and all that and to see him in this kind of shape for it was kind of sad you're absolutely right shaving his head was probably one of the best things he could have done a couple of years later i think it just took years off of him to be honest he didn't look as old and and then on top of that he got into shape which didn't you know which didn't hurt and it's i'm glad you put it in that context matt because i we spoke at the beginning of this episode when you were experiencing technical difficulties difficulties. (laughs) we were discussing the fact that we don't really know this period that well we're not like we weren't Mm. super watching it lots of time so i'm glad you put that in context and when you talked about the fact that you had that feud with lesnar and angle and that i thought actually yeah right i remember now they had the whole thing over sort of the previous year's rumble and all that kind of um and obviously Heyman had turned on lesnar and gone with and gone with the big show and all that so um that that that's really interesting because when he came in here i couldn't remember what kind of push he was getting but because he looked so sad i thought he must be in the period one of those periods where he wasn't being pushed because um i was thinking back to i think the year 2000 when they basically sent him off to fat camp for a while because he just was completely out of shape and they had made a massive investment in him and um, I think it was a, ten, a guaranteed 10-year contract at the time when they brought him in. So they had to do something to try and get some value out of him. So they sent him off to fat camp, and apparently it just didn't work. And so they brought him back, and he was still out of shape. But they were like, well, we have to get something out of him. And so I thought it was one of those periods where he wasn't really having a big – he wasn't in the midst of a big push. And even though I felt that way about him entering the ring, I think Big Show is one of the triumphs of this match, if I'm honest. I think what they do with the Big Show over the course of the rest of this match – is nothing short of miraculous in the sense that I think he his presence is almost the thing that carries this match to a, a lofty height that I didn't think I was going to get halfway through. So we we talked as well, again just before you came on Matt about when the turning point was in this match because we thought the first half of it was a little bit tepid was the word i used it was just it just wasn't quite working for some reason or other and i think um tom has suggested that the uranus miller entrant was the uh it was the turning point which i'm sure you'll disagree with but it was around about that period where it, it, it turned around for me but i think the big show factor here not just his presence in the ring but the way they then present him for the rest of the match really to be honest by the end of it i was like well for me the way they presented him made the last 10 15 minutes of the match which i don't know 
how anyone else feels about that but that that was for me how this this went after this point yeah i i do kind of like you know what you mean it, did, it does feel like a big deal and also the fact is i know they, they egg on it all the time as well but regardless as to how he's presented in terms of how he's booked in the match he's so fucking massive that you can't imagine anybody getting him over the top rope anyway but that so, i think that's what they do really well here is that yeah. if you go back to yokozuna in 93 for example in that rumble there's a moment in that rumble where all the wrestlers are trying to get him out of the ring and they can't he just kicks them away and they and then he then they all split off and then yokozuna ends up winning and i think there's another rumble i was thinking of which is very similar to that with somebody else i can't remember who it is it's probably andre in one of the in one of the yeah. rumbles where they all try and get him out and he manages to get rid of them but then later on does go out here they do the bit where everybody crowds around the big show twice after this point mm. and both times he gets rid of them and at that point you're like actually who is going to get him out and even then the way they eventually do eliminate him which we'll get to in a bit i think is actually quite original quite different especially at the time i think you might see this now maybe a bit more often i think because of the um popularity of, of the ufc in particular this kind of move is more common these days but then i don't think it was common at all in, no. in wrestling and so i think actually i think it makes a really good story of the end of the match and it's not just big show but i think if they hadn't established him the way they do i don't think it would have been quite the end to this match that it ends up being so next up uh is chris jericho he's the 25th man into the ring and as i said jericho christian angle and benoit then all try to eliminate big show together but they fail i was convinced it was edge uh, for ages it, i thought it was edge and then i was like hang on no, that's not that's not edge that's chris jericho <laughs> <laughs> what happened. It's, that's it's, because of what i said a couple of weeks ago about him being my new target yeah i don't know if anybody else kind of um noticed this but the, the one thing in particular that sort of struck me about uh when jericho came out um you know he, he kind of had a thing going with angle there for a minute or two and i just thought how many matches of chris jericho and kurt angle actually had and i was thinking to the best of my knowledge i mean i know they've had one or two but i can't think of one really long solid Jericho versus Angle feud other than like I know they had like that with that Benoit that you know triple threat IC European title match at Mania a couple of years ago but besides that I was thinking how criminal is it that these two have never had a proper proper feud or was it just me or am I forgetting something there was some early stuff wasn't there yeah so I think that's what Matt was referring to but I was going to say before we we answer that question fully I'm going to have to be a pedant here because Matt how long ago do you think a couple of years ago is <laughs> I know I I keep doing this I mean like to me a couple of years ago I I, I don't know I, I I still think that the year is you know when we 2022 as far as I'm concerned it's still like 2010 or something <laughs> it just it doesn't feel like the 2020s anymore I don't know I got a weird thing with that well, none of us have got flying cars. We don't have a fucking Mr. Fusion. We haven't got the weird bottles of Pepsi Max or Nikea Mag. So as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, I'm with you, mate. <laughs> That's the way. I don't think you're wrong though. I'm not sure they ever had a main event level feud for for a major title. In fairness, that's because Jericho. I'm going to say, as I've said many times, never really been a top guy, not in WWE. Like he's had some upper mid card WrestleMania matches and he had one main event, which was one of the worst main events in WrestleMania history with Triple H. But truthfully, he's never really been in the top five stars in the company at any one point, I would suggest. And I think he would. I think they probably would have done had fucking Kurt Angle not spunked away most of his best years in TNA. Well, they might. You you might be right. 
you might be right. But I don't think Jericho was particularly big then. And he wasn't there all the time either. There were big periods of time where he wasn't around because he went off and did his stuff with Fozzie for a number of years. Came back, obviously, to do uh, his best in the world at what I do bit and think in 2008 or whatever it was 2009 so he wasn't there himself all the time mm-hmm. they also probably would have spent time on different rosters even if both of them had been there so i'm not sure i'm not convinced they would really have ever got there i don't know it's an interesting one though yeah so number 26 is charlie Haas. anyone charlie Haas? no thought not <laughs> what are you suggesting we don't know who he is or just what? no just what, i mean i know yeah, it's fucking, whatever <laughs> <laughs> wow I uh, I quite like Charlie Haas. He's just uh, returned uh, to Impact Wrestling just recently. Zing, that'll get the fucking numbers up, won't it? (laughs) (laughs) Christian and Chris Jericho then work together for a bit. Nunzio is still sat on the outside. You get a little uh, camera shot of him. And then Christian backdrop is backdropped out by Jericho after Christian tries to swerve him. I think you'll find it's Edge, mate. What? Which one? Sorry. Ed, we talk about Christian or Chris Jericho here? <laughs> oh, no, Chris, not Christian. Christian's Christian, you idiot. We, we call mid-card Cody mid-card Cody, but I'd also apply that to Christian. Mid-card Christian. Yeah. Well. Number 27 uh, is a man we're all really pleased to see. It's uh, badass Billy Gunn. Gunn hits a famouser on Jericho and Angle and Big Show. And that's the only note I've got after he comes in. No one cares. It's amazing. Like they're like, oh, he's making his return, and, and, and everyone's like sat on their hands, like, yeah, all right, well, here's Billy Gunn. Then I will say the Feymaster on the Big Show is pretty impressive because you, you still got to get a, even the Big Show, Big Show's kind of bent over, still got to get a pretty high to do that with no assistance. Yeah, that's, I'd like that's pretty much the only thing I've got here is um, Feymaster on Big Show, cool. So the next entrant is John Cena at 28, a, a fully baby face and popular John Cena still at this point, um, doing his uh, Doctor of Thugonomics bit. He notices that Nunzio is still sat down at ringside. He throws Nunzio in the ring, but Nunzio is then helped by the Big Show against Cena. Nunzio then tries to, to swerve Big Show, but is uh, swatted away. It's not yet out of the match yet. Do you know what? I, I've not seen any of the Doctor of Thugonomics John Cena stuff. As someone who I think of myself as quite an authority when it comes to <laughs> hip hop, yeah, I find it offensive. Is it is so bad? It is the most generic stereotypes of of the hip hop images you can possibly have. And he does earlier in the show. He does a freestyle, and it is awful, absolutely dreadful. Cadence all over the place. He's missing the pocket constantly. The words barely rhyme. It's awful. And I came into this thinking, nah. How did you get popular? (laughs) You probably got popular because at the time, hip hop itself was doing everything it could to um, stereotype itself, in fairness. Do you know I want to see? I want to see. You're not getting. You're, you're not getting the, the truly great hip hop You're not getting your common, your roots, your most deaf, your talent qualities, dressing like that and acting, acting fools. They're people with integrity, intelligence, and and intensity. Very intense. I was waiting for somebody to say the three eyes then. See, so, you know, no, you you pretty much sort of mentioned it earlier on that you know the this sort of era pr- pretty much was for me that, that this was my era that I grew up watching. So th- this is the John Cena that, that that I'm more used to, arguably than the one of today. I, I've got far more memories and and some fond ones um of this version of Cena. I mean, I, I think what was really fascinating at the time is that. This was just at the point where Cena was really starting to actually get over as a babyface because he was, you know, the the heel for for so long. 
and he was just starting to turn the corner. And I, I will agree with you there, Tom, that, that some of the rap stuff was undeniably cringe. Yeah. But some of it was okay. Now, don't get me wrong. For, for this show, like you know, like you said, the promo we did earlier, garbage. Totally agree with that. It was, it was awful. <laughs> but he has done some stuff where the crowd loved it. You know, little things yeah. like you know, God forbid, he allows the crowd to use a four-letter word and will hold the mic up and and allow them to say shit or something like that. People yeah. loved it. So for me, that this was really cool to actually see this version of Cena again. Well, it's it's the thing, isn't it? Like you 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 grow accustomed to, you grow fond of the stuff that the re, that like what you first got into. So I'm I, that's why I'm such a, f- a fan of like the late eighties stuff. That's why Tinky loves like two, uh, 1994 so much. That but if I go back and say to someone, well, I'll tell you, as a as a guy who comes down to the ring with a parrot and he flaps his arms like a bird, and he's awesome, people will go, no, he's not. Coco, you are dreadful. And I'll be like, you weren't there. You weren't there. There's, 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 a, there's a tag team that come down to the ring in full S&M gear every week, and no one bats an eyelid. They think they're really cool. You know? So, you know, it's all about what you what you start, what you go in with, isn't it? I mean, the, the one thing I will say, though, is I still don't know what word life means. <laughs> no idea what that's about. He's never explained it. No, it's not a word, not a phrase, should I say. I mean, it's fair to say that, Tom, your opinion is coloured by the fact that you love hip hop. And mm. so, you know, maybe if you didn't, you might at least appreciate this as being something that really no one else had done at the time. Mm. And also, it's, it's not, you've got to remember, early 2000s, Eminem's still massive at the time. Wrestling does this. It takes what's big in popular culture and tries to mimic it and tries to get as much out of it as it can. And I think that's what they were doing with John Cena. And they clearly did it to some success. You know, as not someone who's seen a lot of Cena at this period, I do remember, though, his match against Big Show at WrestleMania 20. And they go mad for him. They, they love do. him. Like they absolutely love him. And this that's Madison Square Garden as well. That ain't like somewhere in the middle of nowhere where perhaps you've only got a lot of casual fans. This is this is prime WWE fan territory and they love him. So sometimes you, even if it's not to your taste, it, it, as it isn't really to mine, you have to kind of give it its due. Yeah, yeah, they love, they love it, don't they? I mean, we've had this before. We, we've watched some stuff on this, and we're like, this is absolutely fucking raw. Like Baron von Rushke, and people are going mad for it. So you've always got to like give them the props when they are over. It's just like I said, it's not my thing. Number twenty nine is Rob Van Dam. Um, again, going back to what we were saying earlier on, Tom, another ECW alumni in Philadelphia, and it just doesn't have the impact they are going for they're clearly i really believe that throughout the show they booked it to kind of try and emphasize these entrances for the former ecw guys or done stuff with the foot like the dudleys are in the opener for example it feels very much like they are trying to extract maximum value out of the ecw alumni and it just isn't working they just don't care they're just not interested JR says, Rob Van Dam, the best wrestler to have never won the WWF Championship. That's a hell of a statement. Are you going to, I was going to say, you're going to offer an alternative. Right. Serious head, Ted DiBiase, or Mr. Perfect, two of the, two of the best wrestlers to have never won the WWF. Ted DiBiase, especially, because you, you can make a case for, for Kurt Hennig being a mid card. Someone who helps elevate someone to the main event who can step up if, if ever. I think Ted Ted DBS could have been. If I'm putting my if I'm putting my heart, Warlord and the Barbarian. <laughs> co co tag team champions. Uh, co WWE champions, should I say. 
Well, what I was going to say, so I had I thought about this when he said it, but only in the context of the time. And I thought, first of all, is what is it that they're counting as a world title here? And if they're only counting the WWE title or the world heavyweight title, I'm thinking, guys, you have got a guy in this match that you are trying to put over Massive, who you are going to put in the main event of WrestleMania this very year and is going to win this match, who has mm. never been WWE or world heavyweight champion. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that's a weird thing to say. If, however, you are considering the WCW world title, a world title, which Benoit did win, albeit very briefly, and you may even be including maybe the ECW title, NWA world title, AWA world title at when it was a world title. Maybe even then, though, Mr. Perfect doesn't qualify because he was an AWA world champion. I think it, they're, they're talking about a WWF championship, WWE champion, I think. And that's what I thought. And I thought, well, if that's the case, then hello, Chris Benoit is going to win this match. And you, you, you know, you've just said that someone else is better than him who's never won the world title. Very strange thing to say, I thought. Hey, yeah, throwing us off the scent, wasn't it? Maybe <laughs> that was the idea. <laughs> Despite the uh, fact that the video package before the match does everything to telegraph the fact that Ben was blatantly yeah. going to trouble. <laughs> I did think the same. Then we see John Cena FU angle, and then we get our 30th entrant, which we already know before the match is going to be Goldberg. He comes in, he spears the Big Show and Billy Gunn, he then takes out everyone. Charlie Haas is thrown out by Goldberg, while Nunzio is on Goldberg's back. That bit was pretty cool, I thought. Goldberg then spears the hell out of Nunzio, possibly the fucking best spear I've ever seen. It was quality. And then um, Goldberg clotheslines Billy Gunn out and then press slams Nunzio. I'll take a pause there. We can talk about some of that stuff and then I'll go into the closing sequences. Yeah, the, the, that spear by Goldberg. The, if somebody were to compare it to anything, that that's like an NFL tackle. Like, that, that's exactly what I think of with like an NFL quarterback taking somebody out. He just saw him across the ring and just boom, took him out. It was great. And and I, I love Goldberg. You know, it's and, and this is the type of match that was built for him. The fact they had him come in at number 30 as well. He just comes in, smashes guys, spears, power slams, whatever. He just comes in, kicks the shit out of everybody. That's what you want from Goldberg. So that was some great booking. I'm going to pick you up on two things, Matt, first, before we move, before I give Tom a chance to talk. First of all, the quarterback is the one who would be tackled. That's the as first thing. Tell, I'm not a big NF, <laughs> so I tried. <laughs> the second thing is that you are allowed to say shit. You don't have to not say it. You can say fuck. You can say cunt. It doesn't matter. You can say whatever you want. We do not hold anything back. Is You can say whatever you want. As long as it's not offensive in a prejudicial way, then you can say whatever you want. But this is like this is the podcast that gaffer tapes their bollocks to the table, mate. And when you do that, all bets are off. <laughs> what, what what can I say? I'm, I'm trying to be a gentleman here, but hey, now I know the gloves are off, good to go. Goldberg knocks that little cunt into next week with that. <laughs> all bets are off, and after you've removed the gaffer tape, all the pubes are off as well. Oh yeah, so eye watering <laughs> stuff. Um, the also my, my favorite thing about Goldberg being in the in the, the rumble at, at this point is that it basically he effectively eliminates all of the riffraff mid card talent that you that are just in there to make up the numbers. So again, comes in, he looks strong, bang bang bang, three out, fuck off in quick succession, and then Brock comes down, hits him with an F five, and whilst Billy, whilst William Goldberg is recovering, Kurt Angle lobs him over the top rope, thus setting up their brilliant match at WrestleMania twenty. I like to think that this is the long build for their match at WrestleMania 35 or whatever it is, or 34, <laughs> whenever yeah. they whenever they had that. Yeah, so after Goldberg goes for a jackhammer, 
uh, Lesnar comes out, attacks him, hits an F5. As Goldberg's recovering, he leans on the middle rope and says, you're next, you son of a bitch, to Lesnar. Um, but as as he's distracted by Lesnar, Angle then comes up from behind and eliminates him. So we then have Angle, Cena and Jericho try to eliminate Big Show, as I said earlier on. Uh, they all work together, but Big Show overpowers them. Uh, the others continue to go after Big Show. Um, and he gets a lion salt, a frog splash, a five knuckle shuffle and a flying headbutt all in one go. They then all try to lift Big Show out again to no avail. So this is what I was talking about, where they really build the sense that what the fuck can you do? You Because I think ordinarily the cliche thing would be after Big Show's suffered all the moves, he would then be dunked out unceremoniously. But here at this point, they still can't get him out. So I really thought that was quite, that kind of built it better. Big Show then hip tosses Cena out and throws RVD out when RVD goes for uh, a monkey flip. Jericho, Benoit, Big Show and Angle are then left. Now, again, another thing that I liked about this ending was that ordinarily, as I said before, when they get to number 30, they're usually in a real hurry to get to the end. It's almost like WWE don't think anybody's interested in the wrestling. All they want is the entrances throughout the show but here they really draw this end out and i thought it was very well done I'm but no i agree and i really like the fact that so you've got cena benoit big show rob van damme and jericho and angle all left in there six six people left in the ring feasibly any of them could win it at this stage yeah. which i like so you've got like obviously um cena is the up-and-comer so they can make him a main event by virtue of the fact that he wins this match uh benoit is the kind of the favorite to win it i would say at this point or at least the crowd favorite to win it as you said tinky they've done a really good job at building big show um to this point in the match you got rob van damme who's the best wrestler to have never won the WWF championship you <laughs> and you've got um chris jericho and kurt angle who are both two very reliable hands if you need to you can chuck in the main event as well even though jericho is still like he'd been the the champion at this point the undisputed champion so you've always got that to fall back on when big show eliminates john cena there are it's a tremendous amount of booze going up there which again demonstrates how over john cena was and when we get to the four and four bit like what you said thinking about it all being stretched out there's a really nice like minute two minute period of just one-on-one action between the jericho and the big show which i thought was really really good probably after ernest the cat miller dancing was probably my favorite segment in the in the and actually and the foley bit probably but it's up there as probably my, one of my favorite moments is when chris jericho is fighting the big show <laughs> do you know guys I, I think the jr kind of hit the nail on the head earlier on in the match because he came up with a stat that that i had no idea of at the time and didn't realize he, he said that the person um or he pretty much said that everybody in the ring or who's in the rumble has never won a rumble before i can't remember exactly when he said it but i just thought okay you know the, the, that's that's you know from the commentary team in particular that was like that's a good you know sort of stat to to be able to use and particularly with the guys that they had you know like we said you know jericho benoit and all that 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 was a good thing to know and yeah it, um it was really good the last few absolutely he actually says that this is the first rumble since the first one there where there go. isn't a previous winner in it there we go so that's what he says which is not quite right because Jim Duggan is not in the 1989 Royal Rumble and the 88 Rumble was the first one which he won. But if you're just counting the pay-per-views, then it's right. (laughs) Revisionist history. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the closing sequence of the match, as you said, Jericho and Big Show are facing off. Jericho applies the walls of Jericho to Big Show, but then Jericho is chokeslammed out. Big Show then chokeslams Benoit. 
Angle Slam on Big Show and another then on Benoit. There's an ankle lock by Angle on Big Show in counter to the Choke Slam. There's this horrible glob of spit coming out of Big Show's mouth, which is just an absolute sight to behold. Big Show reverses the ankle lock. In reversing it, Big Show manages to eliminate Angle which means we've got Benoit and the Big Show as the last two, which I think at a certain point in this match, you might have been forgiven for being surprised by, because I think that it seemed more likely you'd get Benoit and Angle in this in this situation, especially given their match the previous year. But you've now got Benoit and, and uh, Big Show left. Benoit hits the flying headbutt on the Big Show as Show is draped over the top rope, but Big Show falls back into the ring rather than out of it. Benoit then counters a chokeslam attempt with a crossface, and, and then Big Show powers out with a sidewalk slam but then Big Show press slams Benoit but Benoit locks in the front face lock and clamps it on climbing over the top rope and pulling Big Show over with him and basically pulling Big Show to the floor while Benoit stays on the apron to end the match I think that that elimination of the jig of the jig show (laughs) jig show is brilliant I think it's done amazingly. I think you kind of touched on earlier, like a what was it? You you're an MMA guy, and you met a Kimura. Yeah. Is that what you call it? It uh, it was it was kind of like a guillotine sort of thing. A guillotine. Kimura's yeah. an armbar, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's just brilliant. It just yeah, and it looks like he's putting everything into it. And there's there's a moment where it's just like everyone's everyone's kind of like on, kind of thinking, oh, shit, the Big Show's going to win this. And then when the Big Show's feet come off the ground, the crowd then are like, oh fuck, he is. He's going over the top rope now. And that that moment where everyone realizes they're like, oh come on, come on. The entire arena is willing for Benoit to win the match at that point. And the elimination is absolutely brilliant. And the genu- there's genuine emotion from the commentary team, from Chris Benoit and from the fans at that point as well. Which even though, like I said, I said at the beginning of the recording that I was I wasn't sure how I was gonna feel about seeing Benoit celebrated to such an extent you know after all he's done but I was like this is a very good moment this is a proper moment at the end of this rumble and I thought it was brilliant yeah no it's um it, it's one of those things that, that this is some of the first uh sort of Benoit stuff that, that I've watched in, in a very long time so it is quite strange to see but you know trying to forget about all that awful stuff aside I mean the uh the, the, the finish of this was the per it was the perfect finish for the perfect guy you know it, it, on that day that's exactly what they needed to do you know everybody knew Benoit was you know this tough technician you know it was always as if you know Benoit was the MMA guy and that finish was designed for him it, it was perfectly done they dragged it out as well with Big Show's feet slowly you know coming off the mat and you know slowly going over the top rope they they dragged that thing out to perfection i mean the, literally the, the crowd just went crazy for it. it it is particularly hard to to hear jr's commentary celebrating benoit so much as well because I, I can vividly remember this this for me was some of jr's best commentary i felt for for a long time and you know he just praises benoit and at the time it was awesome but yes it's it, it's really hard to, to, to kind of listen to now i thought it was a really great end to a match that i thought for the majority for the first 30 minutes maybe was only kind of sort of okay it was it didn't really wasn't doing an awful lot for me and maybe even 40 minutes of it to be honest wasn't doing a lot for me but the end sequence the whole build towards the end the way they built the big show the fact that 
as you said, Tom, you've got these six guys, any of which could theoretically feasibly win the match. And then as they got rid of them, they didn't like rush any of it. It wasn't like three or four of them all just fell out at the same time. They, they kind of made a big deal of each elimination so that they were so they were significant and so they meant something. All the while, you were kind of kept guessing as to which one was going to win. You never got to that point where, OK, it's obviously going to be so and so. And so that's what I really appreciated by, about it. So by the end, I thought this is actually a really good rumble because of the way they finished it. The, the whole last 20 minutes, I think, is just really well put together, really well well done some excellent stuff in there and i think the other thing that i like about this rumble when i look back on it afterwards as well was that it set up not just the main event of wrestlemania which is obviously benoit winning and therefore going on to the to the title match but it set up the lesnar versus uh, goldberg match at wrestlemania it set up the undertaker versus kane match that was due to happen at wrestlemania regardless of what you thought about those matches in the end the point is is that those two matches two of the biggest matches of the night were also set up in this moment arguably there's a bit between john cena and big show at one point in the match kind of starts to lead them toward their WrestleMania match. It was just a very well executed match from both a, a wrestling story perspective in terms of the story of the match and then also building all the other stories that came off of it to make go towards that year's WrestleMania. So we'll take a break there because we've now got through the Royal Rumble. Finally, the Rumble just takes so long to get through. And we'll come back after the break and we will cover the rest of the show. John, tonight you get the chance to live out a dream by winning the Royal Rumble match, going on to WrestleMania 20 and competing for the championship. The only problem is 29 other Raw and SmackDown superstars stand in your way. Your thoughts? The kid pumping up his shoes. That's who you got your money on. Bet on anybody else? Yo, your money gone. I'm the franchise. I don't care if it's SmackDown or Raw. Keep it official with the Mitchell and Ness Tug McGraw. These 29 other dudes, they can't see me. And tonight, the Royal Rumble goes to... R-V-D. What's up, dude? Oh, come on, man. That was cool. <laughs> that dude's a trip. Looks like he's been talking to Mary Jane. I'm going to win the Rumble, man. <laughs> He thinks he's beating me tonight? He can suck my candy cane. I'm cutting through competition. Your boy is sharp as a knife. Tonight I win the Royal Rumble. Word motherfrickin' life. Welcome back to the show. So we've got the rest of the show to cover. We've we've gone through the Rumble, but we've got all of the undercard. We're coming from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for the 17th annual Royal Rumble. We have Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler and the coach on commentary. We did speak about that a little bit earlier on. Funnily enough, we've not made a single comment yet about Jerry Lawler, which is interesting. We haven't said one thing about him. Well, he hasn't been on at all, has he? That's true. Because him and yes, right. Because him and Taz were doing the Royal Rumble. Because we also have another commentary team, which is Michael Cole and Taz. This is obviously the Raw and SmackDown split commentary teams. Then we see some footage of the Dudleys putting Jonathan Coachman through a table on Raw after he tells them to remove their table from the ring. Before the first match, Evolution come down to the ring and Batista is carrying a microphone. Who gave him that? I don't. <laughs> who, who allowed him to have that? He says when talking to the Dudleys that they beat their asses. At Armageddon and on Raw and caused them the biggest losers since the Philadelphia Eagles. Presumably the Eagles had not been performing particularly well that year. I've written here a little wooden. Yeah, I mean, Batista could very much be a replacement from that new metal band 
from WCW since you know, <laughs> he could very much be the uh the you know the, the the lead singer leaves and he could be the person who takes over because he looks very early 2000s new metal as he comes down to the ring so you know he was the ultimate heel year for me simply for cutting off the evolution theme song because god that was such a good entrance song interesting though, that's my least favorite of the motorhead no, oh. no, no. Bow Down to the Game is awful. Evolution is pretty good. Bow Down to the Game is the worst one. I think Evolution's my least favourite, actually, of the oh. Motorhead ones. I mean, the game is classic, right? The game is classic. There's no getting away from that. We're all agreed, surely, that the game yeah. is great. Yeah, true. Bow Down to the King, it's just a bit more goey. I find the Evolution one just like a bit of a drudge. I'm like, oh, come on, guys. Fucking sort your lives out. Get on with it. <laughs> And it's, it's kind of meant to be the, you know, the sort of slow saunter, you know, cockily walking down to the ring in this suit sort of deal. So I, I, I just thought it works really well. Talking about your theme earlier on, Tom, from earlier in the show, we've got Baptista here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a good one. Yeah. Like so, we've, so we've got um, Evolution versus the Dudley Boys here for the tag team titles in a tables match. It's a not particularly long contest. It only goes for five and a half minutes. And it ends when Batista Spinebusters Devon through one of the tables for the win. Coach is then gets the microphone and announces them as winners. So Jonathan Coachman is very happy about this. He's, he walks down to the ring during the match and gets himself kind of involved at ringside. Uh, Matt, what did you think of the match? I, I don't think there was enough of it to, to even form an opinion, to, to be perfectly honest. It, I mean, literally, but my notes I put at the end was, huh, I guess that's it. It, it felt like it was two minutes. I, I don't know why they felt the need to rush through it so much. You know, it's about a three hour. I know the rumble is long and I, I guess they wanted to try and make sure they got that in for time. But it, it just felt like a real kind of throwaway. And, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember the last time there was a tag team tables match where you win by throwing one guy through a table. I thought it was both. Yeah, I wasn't sure what they were going to do. I have, I think I have seen them in both ways, one with both yeah. and one with either. But they don't feel right when it's just one of them. It just no, doesn't quite feel right. And to be honest, I, I, table matches for me are all a bit cheap anyway. I think actually, if I'm perfectly honest, I really dislike tables in wrestling. I've realised now. I think it's just so overdone and so cliched. And fans have this really weird obsession with people going through tables. Like nearly every single match when there's even the hint of a chance that tables could be used. There's this pathetic we want tables chance. And I'm just like, fuck off. Like they're really not that interesting. They're really not. I If they were chanting for ladders, I'd be more open to that. Ladders are more interesting to me. Tables, I just find a little bit laboured and a bit so 2004, quite frankly. <laughs> it depends to me, I think, when, when they're used. And, and like you said, they've become such a trope. I mean, like, let's say the, the Bret Hart going through the commentary table and his match against Diesel. Yeah. Brilliant moment. And to put like a more recent example of someone going through the table, was it last week? Or well, it'll be a couple of weeks ago now when this will go to say... When um, Dustin Rhodes hit Sammy Guevara, the Canadian destroyer, to a table yeah. the side, was pretty spectacular. But Spinebuster, or not like a weird choke slam just through a table, shit, absolutely shit. And and at this point as well, this is basically all the Dudleys have got, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's all they've got is tables, and it's just Bubba Dudley has got some really ill-fitting shorts. He looks like a five-year-old who's been just been told to go off to private school for the first day. His little shorts on. It's awful. I'm not sure a private school would have that kind of uniform. I'm honest. <laughs> no, it's a, you, you, you imagine some weird, some weird private school with shorts. They all wore shorts back. Oh in yeah, the, they would the be little... wearing shorts, but I'm not sure they would have the Dudley boys 
mock and American football jerseys. Well, but, you know, you don't know. We, would, you, we didn't go to private school. That's true. We said earlier. We went, to Very some, true. We, went to, we went to a couple of really poor schools that didn't teach us how what the difference was between a nine and a verb. Exactly. <laughs> I was watching this match and I was like, what? this is a Tabers match. It's featuring Ric Flair. Very past his best. At what point does he bleed? He didn't bleed at all. I was very surprised. That was that was the biggest surprise of the match. I thought it was kind of fun, but it was very, very quick. But if I'm thinking about it, Dudley Boys versus Ric Flair and Batista in 2004, I don't want it lasting longer than this. So for me, it perfectly matched my expectation and it was a little bit of fun. <laughs> Ric Flair didn't play because he didn't have a chance. It only lasted five and a half minutes. Yeah. He didn't, there wasn't enough time here to do yeah, it. But, but we've seen him played in interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. We didn't do our hopes and fears, as Tom calls it, our expectations for the show. Mm. Uh, we forgot to do it before the Rumble as well. We did do mine and Tom's expectations for just the Rumble itself. What about the overall show? What were we kind of hoping for or expecting from this show? As I said at the beginning, this is my this is in my my blackout era. I I didn't watch it at all at the time. So what I do when it shows I don't know anything about the roster or anything like that at the time, I look at the little bit of blurb on the WWE network and see what the matches are going to be. My fears, a long, long Triple H and Shawn Michaels match was what I was I was very fearful for. But I was hoping for a good match between Eddie and Chavo. I thought this could, this could be quite good. And I've also got not necessarily hope or fear, just very surprised. And I remember then I remembered what happened. I was like, Brock Lesnar versus Hardcore Holly. <laughs> and then I remembered obviously about the neck break and all that sort of stuff. But for a moment or two, I was like, what the fuck is this nonsense? <laughs> Matt, I'm presuming you were probably remembered this show quite well. I, I do actually, yeah. And and mine were uh, my, my hopes and fears were almost identical actually. My fear was that this was in the midst of, of Triple H's so-called reign of terror um as world champion and i literally was thinking ah it's gonna be like a 45 minute match or or something like that and it wasn't quite on the 45 minute length but but it was certainly lengthier than the other matches of the show and i was certainly hoping that the the eddie and chavo match i couldn't really remember what it was like i remember the food very well but i couldn't remember the match Uh, and my hope was that uh, was that it was going to be good I think the evolution period for me is just a period where I just wasn't really paying attention. I have seen bits and pieces, but I really wasn't paying attention. I didn't like the stable. I didn't like Triple H. I didn't like Triple H when Triple H wasn't in his reign of terror. You know, he'd had a great 2000, but he had severely come across as quite selfish even then at times in terms of the way he wanted himself to be booked. He never lost the world title, and even in his best year in 2000, the world title always seemed to slip out of his grasp because of somebody else or something else rather than him just being beaten and i think to be honest because of that and then triple h being such a big deal and obviously austin and the rock effectively disappearing from the company with the two other biggest stars it did become a time where i just wasn't that interested as well so i was thinking going into this that I wasn't expecting to love a lot about it, but hopeful that maybe with so much distance now and the fact that we know obviously there was lots of talents in the company at the time that there would be nuggets of fun stuff. And so Eddie and Chavo, as you said, might be something worth watching and Brock Lesnar potentially be interesting to see him back when he was still in his prime I suppose because we didn't really get a lot of his prime years and yeah and seeing Benoit win the Rumble obviously was going to be quite interesting too and the match between Evolution and the Dudley Boys it's just nothing in it like you said Matt there's not a lot to say it's just it just flashes past you and I was just really kind of 
underwhelmed i wasn't expecting anything but at the same time i I was expecting something more than this and i don't know why (laughs) but i was and as you said tom probably it was a blessed relief that they didn't go for very long but still so after their short match we get jonathan coachman trying to conduct an interview with rick flair as they go up (laughs) the ramp together and all i could make out was flair saying evolution is forever as he kind of between very heavy breathing and just chaos basically between the three of them kind of retreating from the ring it was just gibberish wasn't it that's literally you know coaching between his heavy panting (laughs) there was just no need for it they should have just cut the mic so then but backstage josh matthews interviews Uh, john cena this is the bit that tom loved so much My, my first question here though is not about cena what the fuck is Josh Matthews wearing in this yeah. fucking promo? What the fuck is he wearing? I've taken a photograph of it. It'll go up on our Instagram. Tell me you're in 2004 without telling me you're in 2004. <laughs> He's pulling his stupid face again, like he always does, where he looks a bit slightly bewildered and confused. And he's there with his frosted tips and his dreadful shirt. And there's John Cena's talking nonsense. I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck is this? I'm so glad I wasn't watching this at the time. You just know somebody told him to wear it, saying, you know, oh, you got to wear this. It'll look great for TV. Yeah. In 2022, they're going to be talking about this still. <laughs> you know, you said you didn't like the Cena rap. Well, I didn't love the rap. I did appreciate Rob Van Dam coming in yeah. and interrupting and rhyming the last bit with his own name, which was cool. Just see the same word mother frickin life. And that was that, an actual quote. I was like, OK, what does that mean? But whatever, we'll go with it. JR then talks for the first time about Mick Foley's invitation to sit in the front row tonight. We don't get any context for it, though. We don't know who's invited him. We don't know why he's been invited. We just know that he's been invited and there's an empty chair at ringside waiting for him. Then we get match number two, which is Rey Mysterio versus Jamie Noble for the Cruiserweight Championship. Now, talking of short matches, this one is three minutes and five seconds long. And it ends when uh, Mysterio hits a 619 and a springboard leg drop as he comes in for the pin. Really good, but way way too short what's this about yeah i I, first of all can i ask you something tinky this point is uh tony chimor making you tired i didn't notice him which is probably the best no um i my first note i wrote on this was like this should be decent jamie noble ray mysterio the best luchador ever against a very very good hand and i was like looking at it and i saw them both in the ring i was like this is brilliant because aesthetically as well they couldn't look further apart He's got Jamie Noble with his jean shorts, jean shorts on, and that's it. You got Rey Mysterio with his mask and his like brightly coloured tights and everything. I was like, you know, just just looking at this, this is quite satisfying to look at because you don't often get, especially now that we'll bang on about this all the time, me and Tinky. But the fact that I find that everyone looks the same now in WWF, you know what I mean? And I'm like, you know, what? this is this is really cool. They look really different. The match in itself was great, but I kind of the match finished, and I was like, that was far too short. I wrote it here. I'd have been happy if this had gone twice as long but then it'd still only be a six minute match <laughs> i'd be happy for this to go on four times as long because they could have a really really good match but it's not given a chance to for what little there is is good but it's too little for it to be anything other than good unfortunately they're not given the opportunity for it to be great you know what though they don't just look different they are such different styles they they yeah. Jamie Noble, I think they did a good job with Jamie Noble. We saw him 
when I we did our WCW Sin episode, and he was a high flyer basically. He's part of previously had been part of the Young Dragons and was now with Evan Courageous. And when he came to WWE or when they came when he came up to the main roster, they just had him be a, basically a bit of a southern brawler, really, mm-hmm. but but smaller and. It just worked an absolute treat, and they so therefore these two have just just a great different style to each other, as well as looking very different. And also, like they re- they seem to really put some I thought into the Jamie Noble character. I mean, I, I would I'd argue it's still a little bit cliched, you know, the Southern Hick kind of. Um, trailer park uh, dweller if you like but all the same i mean for what wwe usually come up with this was a something with a little bit of um with imagination this match irritated me <laughs> not the not, not the in-ring action itself that, that, that was great i mean you know ray is you know easily one of the best ever jamie noble is highly underrated and, and this was you know i pretty much at the peak I'd sort of say of, of his WWE run, you know, doing some of the best stuff that he's that he's done. But the the whole Nidia being blind thing and Jamie taking advantage of her because she's blind and using her to win matches. I mean, I've literally just written my last note is this angle is in such poor taste. I just can't help but think, particularly with WWE quite recently, you know, having a go at AEW saying that they're, you know, they're not classy or, you know, they're, you know, they do all this type of stuff and, you know, we're WWE. And I just thought, do you know what? This wasn't that long ago. And, you know, you did stuff like this and it's just, oh, I, it, it just left a sour taste in my mouth. I really did. It wasn't that long ago, but it was more than a couple of years, Matt. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's at least uh, say that. Um, I was actually going to ask you, do you, how did this angle with Nidia being blind end? What did they, because I, I was, I was actually expecting them to expose during this match that she wasn't actually blind and she was going to help Jamie Noble win. But obviously that didn't happen. But I was wondering how this ended. Do you remember? Vaguely. I can't remember who the match was against, but she, I, I can't remember 100% but she basically turned on him and went babyface. I'm sure it was, it might have been in the next pay-per-view actually, where she all of a sudden um, revealed that she was all of a sudden no longer blind and she was now going to stand up to him and basically she cost him a match might have even been the title as well um or i can't remember but she basically cost him the match and she's like oh yeah all of a sudden i can now see and she kicked him to the curb and, th- and that was it and they just dropped the whole thing yeah so this match obviously ends not just with the 619 but before that nidia trips jamie noble apparently because she is blind and can't see that she's tripping Noble and thinks she's tripping Mysterio. And then after the match, Noble has a go at her for the fact that he lost. Um, he threatens to kill her. Does he really? I didn't hear that. Wow. Yes. That is, uh, that's, quite the, uh, that's quite the threat in a storyline wrestling-based um, <laughs> genre show. The idea this of someone I mean. killing someone else is mad. Such Good. poor taste. And, and I love the fact that Nidia, I mean, don't get me wrong, okay, let, let's go with it. She, she's meant to be blind, but she just grabs the first foot that comes. What's that about? You know, that, that could have been the ref for all she knew. Just grabs the first foot that's by the rope. <laughs> what, what was that about? Who does uh, Jamie Noble think he is? Jimmy Snooker? <laughs> <laughs> we never miss an opportunity to get to get one in on Jimmy Snooker. He's a cunt and all. <laughs> I think that's the second week we've called him that as well. I think Matt was quite surprised last week when I called him that. But uh, to think Nidia was the uh, was the female winner of the first season of Tough Enough. Yeah, yeah, she was. Um, so we we didn't have by this point Maven had disappeared and Chris Nowinski is is nowhere to be seen. But we did have Josh Matthews doing interviews. 
who was a competitor on the first Tough Enough, and of course Nidia, who won. Which I believe, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm wrong, is that UFC took the idea of Tough Enough and made the Ultimate Fire out of it. I believe they did. I know that um, they had the option um, of the Ultimate Fighter to follow Raw as well. I think it was a Vince McMahon call um, whether or not the Ultimate Fighter was allowed to air directly after Raw, uh, which it did. It ended up getting fantastic ratings, and mm. for people who don't know, the the Ultimate Fighter is the show that you know saved and built the UFC. So you know you could technically you can thank Vince for how awesome MMA is today. <laughs> I will say, like I haven't seen, I've probably seen, I've watched quite a lot of the early seasons of the Ultimate Fighter, and there is some absolute gold in some of those. There are such pricks. So many of them are such pricks. It's amazing. It's quite funny to watch. Well, you know, honestly, I think the first series of Tough Enough is really good. I I really enjoy I remember being on in 2001 and I thought it was excellent. I thought it was a really fun, really enjoyable show and made perfect sense to then build them into the storyline and everything. WWF just didn't have the patience for it, I don't think. I think the first three series of uh, Tough Enough, to be honest, they, for whatever reason, three was a particularly memorable one for me and I highly recommend going to watch that one if you haven't seen it in a while. I haven't seen it at all, I don't think. Ah. I mean, I think what happened is with 2002 I went to uni and I didn't have a TV, so then season two and season three I didn't couldn't see so didn't really make an impression which is another reason why i wasn't watching a lot of this stuff at the time so after Rey Mysterio and jamie noble then a footage of the build-up to eddie versus chavo including guerrero losing the guerreros losing the tag team titles to the bashams then chavo berating eddie for being the one to be pinned then we see kurt angle seemingly trying to play peacemaker between them then an apparent reunion another guerreros versus bashams match with chavo this time being pinned the bashams attacking eddie after the match but chavo not lifting a ving to help him and then after the Bashams had had their pound of flesh Chavo himself got in the ring and beat him down as well then we see Chavo Classic turning up I don't think he was called Chavo Classic by this point but uh, I like the name so much I thought I'd use it here and he turned up and helped uh, to help Chavo beat Eddie up uh, on an episode of Smackdown that had preceded the Rumble I thought this video package was really weird I was like well for a start this tag team breakup seems hauntingly familiar but a bit flimsier than the one NBC so I'm obviously equating it to the Brett and Owen Hart feud of 1994 but it's it all goes to shit after one nightstick hit which is not really Eddie's fault like the reason the reason why the, why the Brett Hart Owen Hart rivalry works so well is that in the initial breakup between the two it's because Brett Hart was letting his ego get in the way and trying to be the hero which Owen Hart then resented and turned on him whereas just getting hit by getting hit by a nightstick by an illegal move just seems a bit flimsy to me personally and then they do the reunion and, they, and that's that is what it is but it was just a bit weird and I find the the, the involvement of Kurt Angle in it just a bit odd as well and I just find it really I just find it really strange it didn't make didn't make a whole lot of sense to me if I'm being honest yeah I, I kind of found the idea of Kurt um sort of being the guy stuck in the middle a, a little bit strange but um the, the video package as a whole I I quite liked and like at, at the time as well I mean the, this match was a big deal like split splitting up Los Guerreros I mean they were such a loved team. I know so many people were so upset when they split these guys up because they really were a loved team. So it was a it was a really big deal. And, you know, to, to, to do the one-on-one match, I mean, I, I think the idea of, of getting it done quick was to, to turn Eddie, well, even more popular, make him more of a bigger baby face and just to get him onto his singles run as fast as possible to prepare for when Brock left. This This was good. Yeah, I mean, I seem to remember, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but it is going to come back to um, Eddie and Chavo, because I seem to remember when Lesnar chose to leave, which obviously 
is not very far away from this. It's just before WrestleMania 20. But it was a very sudden decision, or at least it felt like that way to WWE. I, I, I seem to remember it like him telling them like literally a couple of weeks before WrestleMania, after Mania, I'm done, basically. The reason I bring that up is because actually what you said makes sense, Matt. To me, it feels like they're rushing to get Eddie to away from Chavo just so he can get into the view of Lesnar and take the belt off him. But that would have made more sense had they known by this point, maybe Lesnar told them maybe a week before the Rumble you know, I'm leaving after WrestleMania and then they have to be like, right, quickly, we need to get Eddie to, to a point where we can have him beat Lesnar for the belt. And I I think sometimes this is where, again, for me, wrestling doesn't work hard enough to make things feel... The only word I can use is organic. I, I find that... I find I want a different word because I'm using that a lot at the moment. But you've got a feud between an uncle and a nephew who have not had any problems to this point, at least in WWE. They've been working together as a tag team. This needs to take a while to unravel itself. It can't just come within a few weeks. It's got to be a a multi-month thing that we're seeing play out and it felt rushed to get there and it didn't feel particularly imaginative i think to tom's point the brett owen feud really began at survivor series 93 and they didn't break up until the royal rumble so they'd had sort of almost three months really of build before they properly broke up and even after that brett was reluctant to face owen hart at wrestlemania 10 so it kind of almost went all the way through to to, to March of the, of, the, of the next year here, they kind of almost wrap it up within, it feels like, I mean, I don't, to be honest, I don't know exactly how much time has passed with the, the video package we saw, but it didn't feel like a long period of time. And it feels like they're just very quickly trying to get to this feud so that they can get it out of the way and then Eddie can move on to what's next, which I don't necessarily know if that was ever necessary either. I mean, did they really need to break them up for Eddie to go and have that world title reign? Maybe it would have been more interesting if they hadn't. Yeah, you could have done a a jealousy angle out of that, couldn't you? Certainly after WrestleMania, you could have done. You know, you could have had Eddie get through the big match he had to have with Lesnar and then Angle at WrestleMania and then move into the feud with with Chavo afterwards as one of his sort of pre, uh, sorry, post-WrestleMania feuds. But anyway, the match itself is eight minutes long. So again, not particularly long, this one. We have Eddie hit the frog splash and he takes the win after three amigos as well. After the match, Eddie hits Chavo classic as Chavo tries to get into the ring. There are chants for Eddie and then Eddie attacks both Chavo and Senior at the same time. He wraps Chavo Senior's tie around the bottom rope. Chavo's busted open. It's very weird, this post-match. This is not the yeah. actions of a babyface. And again, what I was saying a second ago, it feels like they're in a hurry to just wrap it all up. It's like, we don't want to have a rematch. We don't, you know, the match isn't very long. Eddie doesn't really have much of a problem beating Chavo. In fact, they even talk about the fact that Eddie's not going to punch him or anything. He's just going to out-wrestle him, which he does relatively easily. And then afterwards, they have him kind of beat them up almost as if I want to underline this now because I don't, we don't want to, we don't want to focus on it for any longer. Very much what Matt said about the first match. It was just a bit something or nothing. I didn't think there was much going on this match. How many minutes do you say? Eight minutes? Yeah. Like it should have been longer. And I must admit, at this point, I had a bit of a a pit in my stomach. So I thought, are these matches so short? Because (laughs) a long-ass Triple H and Shawn Michaels match. One thing I will say is that older... Chavo Sr. comes into the ring with Chavo Jr. And uh, Michael Cole says that Chavo Sr. will be an innocent bisterio here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, so well, there's something quite uncomfortable about this match for me as well. Is Eddie Guerrero is enormous and he is covered in acne. So he is obviously juicing and juicing and juicing so much at the moment that he looks enormous. And again, like I thought about the headbutts, 
and some of the unprotected chair shots as we discussed earlier it made me think maybe feel a bit sad because i'm like this him being that size is definitely something that's contributed to the death of you know one of the most beloved wrestlers of all time and it made me feel a bit sad do you know what this match was it it was just it was booked wrong is the long and short of it it just wasn't booked in the right way it it was one of the most anticipated things on the show because again like i said i mean people were really invested in los guerreros as a team so the idea of them having a match regardless of how quick it was people were initially wanting to see it but you know the fact that it was only like eight minutes it is just bad in and of itself but i just felt that it didn't work like the you know the, the video package at least towards the end of it eddie was basically you know in a rage and he's like you know i'm gonna kick his ass and you're like right okay it felt like we were gonna watch a fight and on the commentary they were talking about eddie saying he's gonna out wrestle him well he never said that before you know like i said in the video package he was like i'm gonna kick his ass so why is he all of a sudden saying, okay, well, I'm going to out-wrestle him and, you know, him being reluctant to, to you know, to, to throw right hands and to do anything resembling sort of a fight? And then as soon as the post-match hits, he all of a sudden goes ballistic and goes, well, the hell with it. I'm going to kick his ass all the same. I just felt, well, if you're going to do that, why don't you just call this a street fight or something and go that route to begin with? It, it, it just, I, I don't know, this was all wrong. Yeah, and actually, I was thinking about it then when you were talking about it. I mean, that's really interesting because, I again, I, the context of Los Guerreros being a really significant team is lost on me a little bit, which is, yeah. so it's interesting to hear that. But I also think that, you know, you said, Tom, you equated it to almost like they're trying to do the hearts against each other again. I think if they were going to go into their back catalogue and pick out a feud where they wanted to, to present a match like this, they should have gone to Bruno San Martino against Larry Zabisco. That, mm-hmm. I think, would have been a better one to use because, and it, and I, I think also the timing would have been better after WrestleMania. They could have had Chavo getting jealous, but but holding it together and almost saying to Eddie in the weeks, couple of weeks after WrestleMania, maybe saying, look, it's great that you're the champion, Uncle Eddie. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of you, but I always feel like I've been your equal and I want people to see that I'm your equal and I want to fight you. I want to wrestle you in a match and I want a champ- chance to face you for the title. And they could have a match on SmackDown where... Eddie does say to him, well, I'm not going to try and beat you because you're my, my nephew. I don't want to hurt you. So I will just try and out wrestle you. This is exactly what they did between San Martino and Zabisco back in 1980. And then they could have had, you know, the match play out and Eddie be able to out wrestle him. And then Chavo turn on him by basically getting frustrated in the middle of the match and maybe using some cheating, you know, but some somehow cheating or whatever. And then maybe even winning by count out or something or, or, or something or, or something like that. And then them start to get into a more personal feud from there and actually build this a bit more kind of just with a bit more kind of imagination but for me you're right they they seem to want to do the straight match even though as you said they've made it really personal already and then after the match he gets really personal with him even though he's won so it didn't feel like a baby face thing to do it didn't feel like it made any sense it just it, it was a very you're right i think badly booked this is next up josh matthews interviews chris benoit backstage but he is interrupted by evolution celebrating their earlier victory rick flair says that benoit might be the best technical wrestler in the world but that randy orton is going to win the rumble tonight 
they hear are trying to sort of start to sort of flares talks about the fact that Benoit can't win the big one. We've heard those mm. words said in past uh, shows we've done. Um, and they also mention that Paul Heyman has made Benoit number one in the Rumble match. That's obviously another reveal that we've got. One thing I didn't know about, and Matt, you might be able to fill us in, why did Heyman dislike Benoit? Um, If I remember rightly, Heyman uh, disliked Benoit because um, this was shortly after Survivor Series where I think Benoit made Brock Lesnar tap during the match. So Benoit and Brock had like a bit of a mini feud going on, which Paul was still kind of in Brock's corner. So as right. like a punishment for Benoit going after Brock's WWE title, he uh, he punished him by saying he's going to make him number one. So then we get a hype video for Brock Lesnar versus Hardcore Holly with lots of shots of the beginning of this feud, which was effectively on the 12th of September 2002 edition of SmackDown. So about 18 months before when Lesnar pretty much dropped Holly on the back of his head with a powerbomb, which put Holly out for over a year. And they very much used the very real injury here of Holly to build the feud between uh, the two of them. Um, but to your point, Tom, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Didn't it come about, basically, because Bob Holly didn't assist Lesnar in lifting him up, so Lesnar just dropped him? Or is that like a hypocritical tale? Is it Lesnar just being crumbsy, or is it a bit crumbsy? Clumsy? <laughs> not as not as crumbsy as you, but in fairness, it does fit the food theme, so it's fine. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've actually read Hardcore Holly's autobiography, and I will say, and I've probably said it before, but I will say it's a damn good read, the Hardcore Holly. Um, autobiography better than a lot of the sort of lesser ones and he's he's got a unique perspective because he's someone who was with the company from the mid 90s right through to the mid 2000s so he's gone through all the attitude era through the monday night wars through part started with the sports entertainment you know, new generation stuff mm. so he's witnessed the montreal screw job firsthand he, he was even there for both Eddie Guerrero and Benoit's deaths as well. So very few people have had have been a part of the company for that length of time, but also had no real pretension to believe that he would be hired back for any reason. Like they weren't going to make him a Hall of Famer and they weren't going to, like he wasn't going to become a trainer probably with WWE. He wasn't likely to be needing employment again from WWE. So he had a really unique perspective that I don't think too many others be, would be able to tell the same sort of story. So it was yeah. quite interesting, but I don't remember what he said about this match, about that match, this, uh, the SmackDown match in 2002, but I don't recall any real kind of anger from him within that book. I just bought it on Audible for yeah. loads of credits. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just buy it. There's a, the, the one thing that is unique about it, I'm giving it a bit of a review here, but, but you know, and I wrote one at the time, in fairness, for one of the wrestling um, websites. One of the best bits about it is that there are, it alternates between chapters of his story and then a chapter where he does like a mini essay on something, uh, something specific. So he does like steroids, for example. He just has opinions on different things, which are really, really interesting. Do you know, guys, I, I'm going to make my feelings known pretty much straight from the off. Fuck Hardcore Holly. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I, I Come on, Matt. Why is that? I can think of no person in the wrestling business who just seems to be more of a bully, just comes across as a dick, and is just thoroughly unlikable. I just oh, I can't stand the guy. And I fully believe that he probably sandbagged Lesnar, wouldn't go up for the power bomb, so Lesnar just dumped him on his head. Don't get me wrong, not great, shouldn't have done it. You know, obviously feel bad that he got injured, but you know what? He's just a dick. 
<laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't have said it as eloquently as you do. But I I feel quite similar about him. If I'm being honest, I'm not a fan of his. But as it happens, I might become I might become a super fan after I listen to his book. <laughs> The Brock Lesnar Hardcore Holly match for the WWE title. I mean, it's amazing that they made this into a WWE title match. Was only, and he ended up lasting six and a half minutes. And effectively, it ends when Lesnar hits an F5 and pins Hardcore Holly. Tom, what did you think of the match? The match, again, it's not very long. There's, there's no point. I mean, I will have to say this WWF Championship belt is the most disgusting belt. Well, the most disgusting WWF title belt ever. <laughs> there are some oh. foul belts, but I hate this belt. I really hate oh. it. Yeah, the, the belt is too thick. I think, oh, no, not for me. It's got quite a lot of... I like the intense start. I like the fact that Bob Holly starts attacking him before... Starts attacking Brock before he can get into the ring. Because that's what it should be. That's what it should be like. He, he's waited 18 months to get his head on him. And I do actually think... I've written here, I think Brock's better back then than he has been since. Or at least at least more technically proficient from a wrestling standpoint. You know, he's got a lot more of a diverse moveset than he has been shown to have later on his, on his career. And he ain't got that horrible knife tattoo either. I did note there's a really good bit of commentary from Taz explaining how to get out of a bear hug, which I thought was quite interesting as well. I was like, do you know what? I'll have that. You know, I think it was quite good. But again, all in all, six minute match. Not, you know, nothing to really talk about because what they've done, what they've, they've fucked themselves by trying to get too many matches in the card before the Rumble match. So therefore squeezing them all in too much. You could probably not have the Dudley Boys and Flair and Evolution match on there. And realistically, if you wanted to definitely keep the title match and the Eddie Guerrero match, drop the Rey Mysterio and Jimmy Noble match, despite the fact that I wanted more of it, you know, and actually have been able to tell some stories in these matches rather than just, they're, they're matches for matches sake, just putting them on there just for the sake of getting someone on the card without any thought of equality. And one thing I did notice, actually, this pay-per-view in, in its entirety is shorter. It's, it's like four, two hours and 39 minutes or something like that, which is... It's shorter than I would have expected. So I don't know what happened there. Maybe it got caught off guard by the time or something like that. But it's a bit of a bit of a weird one. But yeah, this match is this match is fine for what it is. It doesn't stay long enough for it to be bad. So it's just a bit of a sh- bit of a shame again that it's so short. And the reason why, th- and also then that creeping doubt of why it's also so short as well <laughs> is because there's going to be a really long Triple H match. Yeah, that, that that creeping doubt hit me at this point as well. I mean, I literally was looking at the time. I was like, dear God, I was like, this Triple H or Michaels match is going to be long. But th- th- this was fine. Um, I mean, yeah, again, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head there, Tom, and that, you know, it, it wasn't really long enough to be anything special, but it wasn't long enough to be anything bad either i mean you know it, it was hard hitting which is what it needed to be um you know this was obviously personal i mean i, I do think if you look at sort of um some of more of uh, brock's matches over the last couple of years in particular it should have been perhaps that like you know his matches with goldberg and things like that you know because brock has, has demonstrated that you know he can have a fast hard hitting you know finisher 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 tight match and it'd be really good and i think that would have worked a lot better if that's what happened here they didn't need to be doing half the submissions they were doing you know they're as interesting as taz's commentary was about getting out of bear hugs it just it wasn't necessary you know they they probably could have cut that but it was it was fine i mean the, the one thing that did make me laugh was uh michael cole trying to blame brock hurting holly as the reason why his wife left him and he lost money <laughs> <laughs> well that bit the money bit 
I like because that should be the justification for most of these matches is that they're fighting for money. So that bit I liked, but the wife thing is probably a bit too far. Matt, you didn't respond much on Tom's assertion that this is a not a very nice title belt, which I know cut you deeply. It, it, it did because... Other than the uh, the sort of attitude era sort of belt, for me, this is the nicest one they've ever had. When I think of great WWE belts, this one's right up there. But again, it goes into my theory of this is the belt that you watch because I love the winged eagle belt, the the Hogan Bret Hart belt, and I also like the big eagle, the big one, the big eagle as well. Yeah, as well, the one that was done afterwards. So again, it kind of ties back into the what you came into is what you like i suppose i'm not really a big belt fetishist i know a lot of people go mad for them and some people like really make a big deal of what they look like the spinning cedar one obviously being the classic kind of everyone hates it belt but i was always a bit like well you know whatever it's, it's not that big a deal if i'm honest though this one i do find a little bit dull i can't explain it i just find it a little bit nondescript it's got elements i've, I've got a picture up on my computer of it because i wanted to kind of understand a bit more about it and form an opinion and basically it's got elements of both the eagle belt and the the but the attitude era belt with the blue globe but it's just a bit more generic i think it's just a bit less interesting than either and and after this obviously then they get very over the top and obviously you get the spinner belt and all that stuff i quite like the modern one with just the wwe on it i quite like those but um i'm sure most people would disagree but i quite like those so my opinion on the match is that, yeah, way too many submission moves. I just don't want this many submission moves. I don't think that's what you want from a Brock Lesnar match most of the time. I think you want him smash mouth. And to be honest, if there's one thing Hardcore Holly can do is, you know, just a bit of punching back and oh, forth. Yeah. Let's just have a let's just have a nice little brawl um, and get it over and done with. I can only assume that they gave Hardcore Holly this match because they felt bad for the fact that he'd been out injured for what eight, nearly 18 months or whatever. So and I do quite appreciate that they made a story out of something that had happened on a not particularly important match on SmackDown 18 months before. It's just you're not going to get a lot out of Hardcore Holly, especially against Brock Lesnar. This is not Holly's station, ultimately, in, no. uh, in the WWE roster. So backstage, we see Triple H getting taped up ahead of his match with Shawn Michaels and also HBK praying. We then see a video package to hype the match between the two, showing their partnership in DX and with a voiceover by Triple H saying HBK had had used him during his the early part of his career. It also shows HBK beating Triple H at SummerSlam 2002, Triple H attacking HBK with a sledgehammer and then the usual kind of usual kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sad uh, guitar in the background. <laughs> that wasn't what I was going for at all, but uh, I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. So the match between Triple H and Shawn Michaels isn't quite the 45 minute epic that you might have been expecting, but it did last 23 minutes. And for fast forwarding right to the end, effectively, um, there's a pedigree by Triple H. HBK manages to make it up to his feet. Then Michaels hits a tired sweet chin music but neither of them can answer the count after he hits it and both fall down. And we have a draw in this last man standing match for the world heavyweight title. Matt, let's start with getting your thoughts. People did not like that finish. It's probably the first thing that really springs to mind because they, they didn't really help themselves as well. Where they, 
it, it kind of seemed like it, there was some, you know, confusion. I, I'm sort of into MMA, so for me, a draw, it is a result that does happen. You know, it's very rare, but you do occasionally get draws. So if they just come out and immediately announce, yes, this match is a draw, I think that would have taken some of the heat off because it was almost like the crowd didn't really know what was going on. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, okay, well, Triple H is the winner. And they're like, oh, well, that's not what we wanted. The, the match itself was, was good. I was actually expecting a little bit more from them because at this point, you know, to put into context, I mean, th- their feud realistically was never ending. Um, <laughs> I mean, this was, I, I've lost count of how many matches they had against each other. It, it was an awful lot. And they did have some really good ones. Um, unfortunately, never living up to the hype of their SummerSlam 2002 counter for anybody who remembers that absolute classic. But it was good. They tried. I'm I'm actually okay with people blading and I'm okay with blood in matches. I kind of feel it was a little bit unnecessary here. It seemed a little bit too much too early and I didn't really felt that they needed it. But, you know, overall, good match. Yeah, like I said, the, the, the crowd hated the finish. I found this match really boring and I've never seen, including that SummerSlam match for the previous year, a match between Triple H and Shawn Michaels that I've enjoyed. I've never, never enjoyed it. I don't, I don't even like that street fight. I remember Tinky telling me about it. Now, maybe I need to go back and rewatch it because I've only watched yes, it the once. But I didn't, I really didn't, I really didn't enjoy it. And I've, yeah, there's just nothing about this match that, that captured me. I didn't, didn't enjoy it. There's a, there's a nice kind of Shawn Michaels moonsault spot into the announce table, which is pretty cool. Despite, because it is a last man standing match, there is the tendency to go mad with weapons and crazy top spots and they don't do that it's quite restrained for one of these matches but i still just didn't find it very good i've got hardly any notes on it because i was watching it and i was just bored i'm kind of the opposite with tom in terms of triple h versus Shawn michaels matches and i think partially the reason i didn't don't find them tiresome matt is that i didn't as, as we as we've established i wasn't really watching much of the product at the time so it didn't feel endless to me but i was thinking about it when i was watching that i was like god this feud must have gone on forever because their first match was at SummerSlam 2002 what's that 18 months before this so you know it, it must have been going on forever but there's something about the mat that about these two as opponents that i really quite enjoy i i don't know why i always enjoy what they do if triple h had been stood on the other side of the ring to anybody else i'd have been like oh fucking hell but you know and obviously Shawn Michaels brings out the best in most people he wrestles but in this particular but against Triple H in particular I, I think that you could have put could have put Brett in there against him and I'd have been less enthused by it there's just something about Triple H versus Shawn that I actually quite enjoy I too Matt agree that the SummerSlam 2002 match is, is excellent I remember I think it was probably a number of years after that match that I recommended Tom watch it and it was ve- saying it was very good but he just, just wasn't for whatever reason interested in it oh, man. but I I liked it. I liked this match. It wasn't a classic, but I did like the match. I don't like last man standing matches. Last man standing matches, they love doing them at the Royal Rumble. Nearly every year there's a last man standing match. It wouldn't surprise me if there's a match at this year's Rumble that actually took place yesterday as this episode comes out but we are doing it a couple of weeks before that um was a last man standing really wouldn't surprise me we had one at last year's royal rumble we we seem to have them every single year there was one at the 2020 uh royal rumble between i think roman reigns and baron corbin i think had a last man standing match and i don't particularly like them and i especially don't like them when they end in a fucking draw but 
I thought this was still a decent match. And I think there was something, I agree with you that the blood, there was too much of it, maybe a bit too early, but I think that allowed them to sell the idea that they were both exhausted by the end and therefore they couldn't answer the 10 count. I quite enjoyed the match. I thought it was a, it was a good one, but I could, I could also well believe that Tom was going to be bored whilst I was watching. I was thinking, yeah, Tom's not going to like this. Tom's not going to like this at all. <laughs> so that's pretty much the whole show. So yeah, what were our overall thoughts and our ratings out of 10? I realize we haven't, none of us have said our match tonight, but I'm assuming that it's the rumble for everybody. Is that not, is that not a fair assumption? If, yeah, it would have been Chavo Vazetti, I think, if they, if they were given more time or Mysterio and Noble, if they were given more time. But in lieu of that, it's got to be the rumble match for me. Yeah, and but... and Tom, you gave your MVP to who was it? Taz. I give it to Taz. That's right. Yeah. I really enjoyed his commentary, especially the bit during the uh, the Ernest the Cat Miller segment in the Rumble. And I thought what I would do is take one for the team and name Chris Benoit as the MVP because I'm assuming that nobody really wants to name him as MVP. But ultimately, I mean, he's the best performer on this show, so it's a bit hard to overlook him. That is that is a bold move. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's a bold move. I, I'm actually going to name my MVP as one Randall Keith Orton. That's fair. I think he had a very good night at the Royal Rumble match. He did. He did. I mean, I was I was very, believe it or not, I was actually close, very close to naming it as Mick Foley. Wow. Was, I, I so enjoyed the interaction between the pair of them, and I, I just felt Foley was so good at it. I was so close, but... Now nah, Orton was in the rumble for longer and, and did more, so Orton gets that. Okay, Tom, your rating out of 10 and your overall thoughts on the show. I've scored this quite high. I've scored this as a 7 out of 10. I really, really liked the rumble um, a lot more than I thought I was going to. There's those kind of big moments in the rumble, so specifically the, the final moment where there's, the, where there's the six participants left in the ring that any one of them could win. The big show elimination, the big show Jericho kind of bit in it. The Obviously the bit with Ernest Miller bit where angle comes down the foley section in it there's a lot to like about this rumble so that's that's the main reason is it's basically it's the royal rumble pay-per-view and i'm scoring is mainly based off the rumble the undercard is a little bit underwhelming i i would say i just wish that there was more time which is something i don't usually wish for because I, I usually struggle to get through the pay-per-views that i'm watching for the podcast at times but I could have done with the ma- some of the matches being a bit longer and one of the matches being a little bit shorter. Yeah, so I'm, I'm scoring this a seven because I thought it was uh, I thought it was good. And like we said, like I think it was you said it earlier, Matt. The right person wins again. WWE don't do that enough. It, it's the person that needs to win the big thing wins the big thing, and that can't ever be overlooked in my opinion. I think I'm going to go with a six on this one. I think you can easily call it 100%. It, it was a show of two halves in the sense of. The first half with all the undercard just really wasn't up to match. It it was all far too quick. You know, the matches are far too short and just didn't have enough time to amount to anything. You know, the second half of the show where, you know, you had the Rumble itself and the Triple H and Michaels match certainly saved it and definitely made the show. The Rumble itself, I mean, like like, like we've said, you know, already, you know, forgetting all the stuff that Benoit has done, it is one of the most memorable Royal Rumble wins, I, I think, of all time. I think so many people remember how important it was and, you know, remember all the stuff that led to WrestleMania 20 and how cool that was. Um, So, you know, for the, you know, that win was definitely, you know, really important, made the match. So yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, it's not, not the best Rumble I've ever seen, but it was pretty good. I think... If you take the fact that the Rumble's an hour, the match between Shawn Michaels and Triple H, which I actually quite liked, is 23 minutes long. You're talking about an hour and a half of this show, which is all pretty good. 
the undercard in that context doesn't really matter. You could have had four of the shittest matches ever in those undercard spots. It wouldn't really have affected the overall quality of the show. I think the Rumble match itself is a, is a game of two halves. I think the first half is underwhelming, and then the second half, it just builds and builds. It gets better. The build of the big show in the match is really good. The setup of the bit at the end, as Tom said, when you've got six guys left, and then the slow unraveling of those six the, the gradual elimination of each of those six until you get down to the final two is really cool the setup for kane and the undertaker the setup for mcfoley and randy orton the sort of hints of the first the first hints of john cena and big show and then of, of course you've got benoit wins the match and therefore goes into the wrestlemania main event all of that i just thought was done really really well i even enjoyed you know i enjoyed the comedy spot with ernest miller i even enjoyed the nunzio bit though very inconsequential didn't really mean anything but just again just a little element to the match that wasn't just another guy comes in another guy that really doesn't really matter no one really cares about nunzio but his 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 entrance into the match still meant something by the end it still was notable in some way so i like that too and as I said, I quite like the world title match. So I'm giving it a seven out of ten. Um, and I think it's uh, I think it's a really decent, uh, you know, a dis- decent show overall. And uh, especially the last 20 minutes of the Rumble, I thought was very, very good indeed. One of the better plotted out Rumbles I think mm-hmm. we've ever seen. Um, certainly the end of it. Uh, so, yeah, really appreciated that. Yeah, the stages is in there. That's what's good about it. So that brings us to the end of today's show. But I still have to uh, thank you both for joining me today. So, Tom, thank you for joining me this week. It was my pleasure. Um, I'll be back in two weeks time. You will. I'm putting a plea out to the listeners now. And we'll remind them on Twitter when this happens. We need food names for Matt Hardy, Matt Morgan, Spike Dudley, Rene Dupree, A-Train, Kurt Angle, Rico, Mick Foley, Christian, Nunzio, Big Show, Charlie Haas, Billy Gunn and Rob Van Dam. Rob Van Ham. Rob Van Ham, yes. You are not going to be with us in two weeks' time, Tom. You're going to be with us next week because we're going to do something funky with the recording schedule that people that will mean that you're recording with us in two weeks, but you're actually on next week's show. Um, and Matt, thank you for your contributions as well. Pleasure as always, gents. Uh, we are, will be back again next week with another randomly reviewed wrestling show. But until then, take care.